Blog Talk Radio. So vast, so great, the African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony, the earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity, human beings. Human love on a spiritual tip. So vast, so great. The African embrace. Live beyond, love beyond your skin. To where you belong. Take it down. For the non-dete 
Brother Africa, <clears throat> thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamatham Shoki, Colonel with African Awareness. And of course, you know my thing is institution building. But one of the things I got to tell you, Brother Africa, you know, I, I read a couple articles with respect to banks. And one thing that's very, very clear to me is that the fertility of banks or the use, uselessness of the banks is very apparent. In fact, this desperation in terms of um, uh, resources for the bank has actually uh, increased tenfold. And so what is interesting is the bank is currently bidding for uh, Bitcoin services, even though historically they denied uh, the usefulness, usefulness of uh, Bitcoin. But in any event, I, I just wanted to check this out because I thought it was pretty interesting in terms of uh, this relationship in terms of uh, banks and its usefulness to society. Now, the function of U.S. commercial banks have been negatively impacted by both government policy with respect to closing of the economy and structural problems related to banking standards. Commercial banks' unwillingness to invest in the real economy has negatively impacted the bank's capital requirements or funds needed to cover the bank in the event of withdrawals. Deficits ran by commercial banks have compelled the Federal Reserve to reevaluate banking policy in hopes regulatory changes will result in more efficiency while increasing services to the real economy. Among the proposed regula regulatory changes are, one, prohibit most forms of stock buybacks, two, cap the growth of profits to shareholders, three, reassess the bank's level of funds needed to operate efficiently with its capital requirements, and four, continuous stress analysis of the bank. While these regulatory requirements are good in theory, Bloomberg's news, news suit against the Federal Reserve underscores the unique problem of capitalism, capitalism fixation of growth at all costs. The reality is fractional, fractional banking utilized by banking institutions creates a perception of growth, justifying high dividends for investors without contributing to real growth in the economy. Fractional banking, the deceptive accounting practice on paper, uses a single investment to make multiple loans. In effect, increases the money supply without business exchange. This capitalist practice will not be impacted by the Fed's regulations and will remain in place. Now, the incentives to not invest in the real economy will continue unabated. Now, the desperation of the banks can largely be attributed to business practices. Of the $2.6 trillion debt held by the 60 largest corporations, I contribute to the bank's financial woes. Hard-pressed to repay their bank loans, impact on banks' capital stocks has been palpable. In addition to the Federal Reserve's requirement of 10% reserve requirements for banks, this requirement will squeeze banks' finances even harder. Given a declining economy, the monies that must be provided to the Federal Reserve to operate means additional income must be sought by banks to remain solvent. The most recent attempt by banks to create a revenue stream involved the bank's embrace of Bitcoin. This move was, was, was preceded by the federal court ruling that decreed the IRS can summon Kraken, a Bitcoin exchange, to reveal its investors, specifically those with over $20,000 in Bitcoin. Banks were quick to capitalize on this ruling. Express interest in providing Bitcoin services to the public proliferated. These same banks that characterized Bitcoin as a Ponzi scheme, as charlatans, and unworkable are now clamoring for the opportunity to be part of Bitcoin. So what changed? First of all, the bank's motivations have nothing to do with altruism or the public good. Their interests grow purely from self-interest. Really from the increase of Federal Reserve Reserve requirements, specifically net transaction costs or business conducted by banks that do not include fees, is particularly problematic for banks. The reality is, given high unemployment, decreasing wages, and marital dissolution are not the best candidates for bank loans. Banks increasingly have to rely on corporate businesses to remain solvent. Even this reliance on corporate business is precarious. Currently, over 600 corporations, big businesses, big businesses among them, are considered zombie entities. 
zombie entities are businesses that are unable to pay interest on their debt. This was a particular question given thanks to the financial introduction of businesses to the stock exchange on receiving one-time fees. One-time fees may be welcome by banks, but the bigger problem for banks is they, know they need to generate funds on a continuous basis, like, like home loans or small businesses. The fact corporate bankruptcies have increased from 578 in 2019 to 630 in 2020 severely compounds the bank's capital requirements. The only assurances banks have is the fair history of acquiring the bank's debt. While the practice was first initiated in 2008, the sheer level of U.S. debt makes this strategy difficult to employ in the long term. Vulnerabilities of banks will persist, but the bigger vulnerability will be felt by the smaller banks. It is this precariousness of banks that facilitates so much desperation. Well, not to worry. Bitcoin to the rescue. Demonstrating its popularity around the globe, banks envision a trend of long-term profitability. Of course, the incursion of banks into Bitcoin space may not pan out well for consumers of Bitcoin, given its penchant for exploitation of consumers in the marketplace. The bank's involvement with Bitcoin is questionable on two levels. First, the currency was established to eliminate banks. Peer-to-peer exchange, in addition to blockchain technology, reduces the level of institutional corruption. Banks, for example, typically charge a storage fee, a monthly fee, for accounts below the minimum requirement. This indignity is magnified when banks use accounts for investment purposes while paying interest to consumers the equivalent of pennies on a month. So while the banks prosper, no reasonable attempt to fairly compensate customers. They assume all the benefits. Cryptocurrency, for this reason, was created as a store of value in which both sides play by the same rules. Secondly, the unit of account makes cryptocurrency accessible to people around the world. In making it accessible, governments cannot confiscate it, and people are free to use it to facilitate trade, which is beneficial to them. This benefit exists globally wherein people can conduct trade that circumvent government restrictions. This type of arrangement affords people control in addition to certainty. This type of stability is woefully lacking in the day-to-day affairs of banks. Instability among banks exists because the needs of the economy takes a backseat to rewarding shareholders and top executives. In 2008, when the government purchased the bank's negative assets, it did so under the mistaken belief cleaning up the bank's balance sheets would result in more bank investments into the real economy. That simply did not happen. Instead, banks continue to give loans to zombie corporations or corporations unable to pay interest on their loans. More than 600 of the largest corporations unable to pay their debts continue to be the largest beneficiaries of the bank's largesse. This despite a failing economy, truly a paradox of capitalism, pure and simple. And I close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll bring in Brother Moses. Welcome to Africa on the Move, Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during the government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't we don't reverse correct verdicts, Brother Africa. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. And uh, I'd like to say that uh, it's the Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, yes. And the women hold up half the sky, half the sky. And thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. 
Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we're going from Brother Moses to Sister Shirley. Sister Shirley, welcome to Africa on the Move. Revolutionary greetings to everyone. My name is Shirley Tate. Uh, I spend most of my time focusing on uh, Cuba and Haiti uh, issues and have been uh concentrating on those two in particular for about the last 15 years, but have certainly uh, put my finger in many, many um, others. Uh, It's a pleasure to be on the program, and I look forward to listening to the other panelists. Thank you, Sister Shirley. I believe we have with us Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, welcome to Africa on the Move. Yes, good evening, uh, Brother Africa and all the panelists and everyone who's within range of our voices. Um, Peace be with you and blessings. The thing that concerns me, as you know, Brother Africa, has been the pandemic and the um, distribution of proprietary knowledge to any pharmaceutical companies on the planet that are able to produce the vaccine, vaccine. I understand that this week, Cuba, our revolutionary brothers and sisters in Cuba, began to inoculate their entire population with the uh, Cuban vaccine. Congratulations to Cuba. But one of the biggest concerns that should be on everyone's mind has been the devastation of the last week of the Palestinian people. Israel is attacking uh, the Palestinian people Uh, both in Jerusalem and on the West Bank. And uh, this is an outrage. And it was shocking to hear President Biden stand up and talk about Israel defending itself. Israel isn't defending itself. It's committing genocide on the Palestinian people. Uh, It's important for the world to always remember that uh, Israel is a military settler state. And uh, the Palestinians... Uh, it's a it's an ancient country, Palestine. People should be able to live with religious freedom everywhere. And certainly Palestinians should be able to live in their homeland, Palestine. And the uh, I saw three multi-family high-rise buildings imploded on television. I saw Jerusalem in Jerusalem mobs breaking into uh, the homes of Palestinians. They're planning these evictions. Uh, it's, they've been postponed uh, temporarily, it appears, but this is an uh, outrage, a human rights outrage. People everywhere should stand up and say no. We should also focus in on Yemen and the, the incredible starvation that the people are suffering And I hope that we will do that. I hope that uh, the world will begin to move food and medicine into the West Bank. The Israelis have blocked uh, uh, ships now for 15 years, and then we have allowed this uh, quiet uh, starvation of tens of thousands of people in Yemen. We have 12 countries in Africa that haven't received one dose of the vaccine. And it's time for us to unite and understand that uh, we are brothers and sisters. And what affects 
one of us affects all of us. And uh, with that in mind, I'd just like to say thank you so much for allowing me to join you all this evening. And I would urge uh, folks to call in and uh, participate in this podcast. And uh, good evening to everyone. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. You are listening to Africa on the Move. I'm your host, Brother Africa. Tonight we're going to be in the seat and we're going to take the heat because as they define it, they're going to stand behind it. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a quick commercial break, revolutionary break, and when we come back, we're going to start our first segment on what's going on in your world and the community. And if you'd like to call in and share with us what's going on in your world and community, we encourage you to dial 323-679-0841, hit 1, and we'll bring you in. So right now, we're going to our revolutionary break, and when we come back, we're going to find out what's going on in your world and the community. This is Africa on the Move. And the 
That's right. Stop being a buffalo soldier. Ever since our arrival, we've been fighting for our survival. And the struggle continues today. What I'm going to do right now, real quickly, before we go into our segment, what's going on in your work. And let me just share with you a couple of historical significant events that took place in our Pan-African world on this day of the 16th of May. We have Max Gordon, organizer of the American Trade Union in South Africa, Zania, in 1930s, died in the year 1977. Also on this date, we have Modibo Kito. He was a progressive first president of Mali. He died on this date in the year 1977. And we have Junior Kwame Nkrumah, literary executor, died on this date in 2018. So, so just a little significance historical facts of what took place on this day as we to our people struggle movement. Right now what we want to do is we go to our political panelists and and you the public. You feel free to call in at three two three six seven nine oh eight four one. We're gonna talk a little bit about what's going on in your world and the community. Right now we're gonna start off with Brother High Key. We're gonna bring him back in. Brother High Key, what's going on in your world? and the community, Brother Haki. Well, you know, Brother Africa, you know, we talk a lot about um, the propaganda and disinformation that exists in American society, but the reality is that this, this manipulation, this disinformation, this propaganda exists throughout the world. And certainly one of the biggest catalysts behind disinformation and propaganda certainly is the United States. In particular, we talk about the U.S. deep state. So I just thought I want to talk a little bit about that and give some people some context in terms of understanding when we talk about manipulation, disinformation, or propaganda, understand why it exists, and uh, possibly what can we do in terms of uh, fighting against you know, this, kind of, this kind of deception. In any event, check this out, Brother Africa. Now, the biography of John Monet, translated by Eric Roussel, details the establishment of the European Union's framework in the 1940 I'm sorry, 1940s. Despite claims of European Union evolution as an autonomous body, the history is quite different. Richard J. Aldrich's book, The Hidden Hand, details the conceptual framework of the European Union, contained in a report from the American Committee for a United Europe. The report lays out the funding mechanism for financing a United Europe and some of the key deep state players involved in the project. People like Alan Dulles, the first CIA director, Bill Donovan, intelligence officer and a diplomat, and Tom Braden, a CIA official, working through the CIA, formulated a plan to encircle Russia, force Russia to concede to U.S. policy, effectively leading to the end of communist ideas. This project is ongoing, and the fact communism is an, as an ideology still exists today is problematic for the U.S. deep state and is reflected in CIA operations currently in Europe. Now, historically, according to Aldrich, anti-Americanism in Europe resulted in the creation of the Bilderberg Group, funded by Joseph Lintinger and Prince Bernhard of Netherlands, the organization of billionaires has served as an intermediary between Western intelligence agencies and corporate interests throughout the Western world. This relationship would ensure corporate interests would be shared by both Europe and American capitalists, resulting in policy or policies that is or are mutually beneficial. Holding this coalition together is not an easy feat. Legitimate differences over policy, institutional resistance to change, or political ineptitude surface from time to time, and it is this conflict that undermines the effectiveness of CIA planning. 
However, conflict as a strategy can be useful to advance CIA objectives when when the conflict leads to, <laughs> excuse me, when the conflict leads to enlightenment among the populace. This complicates the CIA ability to reinforce anti communism bias among the populace. Anti communism in use manifests itself as right wing movements. In Germany, there is alternative for Germany. In Austria, there's the Freedom Party. In Italy, there's the Brussels of Italy, to name a few. The one thing they have in common, aside from anti-immigrants, is anti-communism. It is ironic. In the U.S., reporting of anti-communism or anti-socialism is purred by news organizations continually. Oddly, narratives of anti-communism seldom comes from poor people, but from those entrenched in the bureaucracy. Generally, as a rule, media tends to prop up voices whose self-interest align with the state. Obviously, what poor people have to say is not newsworthy, but in highlighting the voices of those with status, it reveals the nature of propaganda. Recently, an anonymous letter from a group called the Flag Officers for America occurred by mainstream media. Even though the letter did not identify an author, it was published regardless. It appears journalism's ethics were cast aside in favor of a propagandistic effect. The letter railed, quote, the U.S. has taken a hard left turn towards socialism and a Marxist form of tyrannical government, end quote. Tyrannical, high ironic. Perhaps they're confused by capitalists that are one-tenth, one percent of the population to control every aspect of government. This story was followed by a similar story by the mainstream media, which reported an anonymous letter signed by four officers, 18 enlisted soldiers, and a retired generals in France, warning of a civil war. Apparently, the clash of civilizations between the Muslim culture and the French culture are irreconcilable. Needless to say, neoliberalism is the real culprit, but the narrative blames Macron for not getting tough, not the true nature of imperialism. The global imperial structure is designed to maximize deception. Facilitating disinformation puts the people at a disadvantage. Access to information is vital to well-functioning societies. Societies that eliminate illiteracy are societies that perform well. Societies which facilitate illiteracy, like the U.S., creates a vulnerability among its people while exploitation of said people is assured. Increasingly, educational budgets and youth are being cut. While these cuts are in keeping with neoliberalism design, the fact cannot be dismissed. These educational budget decreases will greatly contribute to a knowledge deficit, making exploitation of the people much easier. When considering the evolution of the European Union project, the impetus of the plan was to ensure Europe act like a vessel state to U.S. interests. The enlistment of wealthy Europeans to the American cause implied the masses of people's aspirations would take a back seat to express interest in showing the wealthy prosper. In an era of global economic decline resulting from capitalism, the precariousness of people can only be managed one of two ways. First, they can pit people against one another, usually along ethnic or cultural lines. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Now, this, this effectiveness is limited by the fact that in order for this to be successful, people have to engage. Oftentimes, people are not willing to engage, which renders this particular strategy ineffective. Secondly, the brutal repression, brutal repression or the slaughter or mass internment of people may be effective. But this is also an indication of the oncoming collapse of that society. Brutal repression breeds a kind of resistance that embodies the feeling no other alternative exists. This mindset is truly indicative of society at its end. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses. What's going on in your world and the community, Brother Moses? Okay, Brother Africa, I'll get straight to the point. Which side are you on? 
Jesus said in Luke sixteen sixteen that the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist, since the kingdom of heaven is preached. Jesus also prayed that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yet many preachers today, unlike Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., are telling people to accept conditions as they are, ignore the world, and just keep coming to church and paying your tithes because Jesus will solve all the world's injustices when he returns. However, the Palestinian people need your help. Your tax dollars are paying to maintain the racist apartheid government of Israel. The U.S. government props up Israel with billions of dollars each year. Zionism is racism. The belief in a government of Jews, by Jews, and for only Jews is Zionism. Well, over 2,000 years ago, there was a Jewish kingdom. But when Jesus was born, the Jews were no longer a nation state. Some wanted to return to the good old days, but Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world. He was a revolutionary and an internationalist because he was for all people, not just Jews. In 1948, Palestine was occupied by a well-armed group of Jews who killed and maimed to establish Israel, and that government continues to kill and displace the Palestinian people from their homeland. These Jews are not Christians and don't claim to be Christians, yet it is primarily the Christian community that supports them. Either you're part of the solution or you're part of the problem. Get involved. The people of Palestine and the freedom-loving people around the world will not rest until Palestine is free. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Going from Brother Moses, we will now bring in our sister Shirley. Sister Shirley, the mic is yours. Thank you. Um, most most of the last couple of days, I have been reading uh, several different articles on uh, the situation Israel and Palestine, and most of those articles repeat the chronology of events that have taken place, uh, the, the, the ancient history, and also uh, the conflicts beginning in, uh, before 1948 and 1948 and after that. And, of course, the U.S. complicity in uh, completely supporting uh, this murderous Zionist um, state. And um, it is often mentioned that the U.S. is contributing supposedly in the neighborhood of $3.8 billion. Uh, you can only assume it's a lot more than that and that it's under the table and comes from directions that we don't know necessarily where, but it is going from the U.S. to uh, the Zionists. And I read one article that struck me, and that was about the huge number of nonprofits here in the United States that are are funding, in in particular, the uh, settlers. And there was one fund that had actually made a $36 million donation that went directly to the settlers. 
and of course, people that are making these donations are also getting a U.S. tax deduction on on the do- donations that they're making. But they're making donations to do things that involve the extrajudicial killing of people, of uh, a Zionist state that's occupying a people and uh, um, uh, murdering them, starving them, uh, preventing them from returning home. So there are a variety of uh, organizations that are starting to now investigate these nonprofits that are sending all this this, uh, money over. And they always figured if uh, if the U.S. stopped funding Israel, which will not happen, but if it did, that there's plenty of enough enough money coming from individuals here in the United States to fund all their activities, including their military uh, uh, activities as well. So I just wanted to highlight that. And then one more thing I found that I that was very interesting. Um, there are some Italian dock workers who refused to load an arms shipment to Israel. And um, a ship showed up in a, in a, a port called Il, Il, Livorno, Italy, and it was uh, loaded with a variety of weapons that were on it, and they found out that it was bound for Israel. So the dock workers said, to hell with this. We are not offloading or doing anything to transfer anything to another ship. No, we're not going to do it. And they left. Unfortunately, at a later point in the day, another group of dock workers did offload it. But the concept of more of the dock workers, for instance, is just one example, refusing to be a participant in the uh, Holocaust of sorts that's happening on Palestinians in uh, occupied areas, that this would be a very good activity if uh, especially true uh, through participation by dock workers unions, that that becomes uh, some sort of resistance that people can contribute to uh, regarding any aid to help Israel continue to commit mass murder. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sister Shirley. Now we'll go to Sister Illinois. What's going on in your world in the community? The mic is yours. Okay. Sister Illinois, the mic is yours. Oh, good evening, um, everyone and Brother Africa. Uh, I I have to just simply uh, stand with the other panelists. My biggest concern right now is... uh, Palestine and what's been going on this week. This is an outrage, and uh, initially, when the uh, British and the 
Europeans decided to offer the Jews a place to go. They offered them Kuwait, South Africa, or Uganda, or Palestine. And uh, Kuwait wasn't even a country. It was created as was Israel, as was Turkey. And Kuwait was just, they took a piece of Iraq and made a country, and they wanted uh, the Jews to have a homeland. But I think this was racist in itself. Uh, Jewish people lived in the West. And why did we not offer them a state of the United States? Montana, could Helena, the capital is now Helena. It could be Tel Aviv. But something has to be done to stop this genocide. And this genocide has been going on since 1948, as everyone said. But I think about this 26-foot wall that they have around the 162 Palestinian neighborhoods. I think about the starvation, not allowing food in. I think about the deaths that aren't from bullets, but they're from environmental hazards, the implosion of these buildings. We saw in our own country from 9-11 the side effects, the medical side effects of the of the bombing of Twin Towers. We saw people coming down with cancer and all sorts of diseases. Certainly this must be happening to the Palestinian people. So I would say that we need to stand in unity with the Palestinian people. We need to, uh, I'm certainly going to participate in that uh, May 22nd African Liberation Day uh, Zoom cast and learn what I can. But more importantly, I think that we need to support Palestinian organizations where we live and work with the people that are actively supporting Palestinians and do whatever we can. And I think about the the Palestinians and the vaccine. I understand that they've not been able to have access to the vaccine. What is that about? So all of those things come to issue in this this global genocide. Do we deprive nations based on their race or basic human rights, such as housing, education, health care, food? There has to be some type of political action where there is a world resolution that moves this agenda forward where housing will be a human right. Now, since the banks have been deregulated in the United States, there's tons of foreign investment. They run your bank. Your local bank may not be owned by anyone in the United States. So U.S. capitalism isn't working for U.S. citizens. It's working for rich people, wherever they are. It's not working for you or I. It's not working for uh, your city or your neighborhood. Because the EU limits profits to some level, but we have no limits here. We have no boundaries here. We deal with issues such as housing and health care as if it's a commodity, as if we're exchanging pork bellies. So we need to change this, and we need to stand up each individual and embrace our brothers and sisters and guide each other forward. And we certainly need to change the U.S. educational system 
because they're going to decline. If anyone looks, the U.S. isn't any longer number one or number two in world literacy and education, not at all. It's down in the 30s somewhere. So we're not a people making wise decisions. We don't have the tools to make those decisions. So with that in mind, I hope that uh, we can increase the uh, listening uh, participation to this program, and I thank you all for participating and, and, and allowing me to uh, participate in this wonderful podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. What we're going to do take a quick revolution break. When we come back, we're going to continue the discussion what's going on in your world, in the community, and I'd like to pose this question to all of my panelists and my listeners. And the question is this, why is it important for the workers to be politically educated? Why is it important for the workers to be politically educated? And that question came to my mind when I heard Sister Shirley talk about a group of workers, dock shippers in Italy, refused to work on any ships. The arms were going to Israel. So we'd like to have that discussion more when we return. This is Africa on the Moon. Tu 
ngane tupe yane mawazo no tutaje maiti yesu kongo tuepuke vita tukataye vita juki na fitina ili kongo yende mbele na afrika nzima mama 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 I want you to know that I'm here for 
solution to African people problem globally is pan-Africanism. So let's get on more. Fight for a one unified socialist Africa. Welcome back to Africa to move. Um, before we go, before we continue the discussion on what's going on with our community and the question that we posed to our panelists, panelists before we left, um, which is, you know, why is it important for the workers to be politically politically educated. And the question came about earlier because Sister Shirley said something interesting about uh, one of the articles she read about how some of the workers who work on the, on the dock in Italy refused to ship uh, arms into Israel while at the same time when they walk off, another set of workers came and chose to ship the arms to Israel. So it raises the issue of the importance of we function as one. When we talk about we, I'm talking about the workers. So, panelists, why is it important, Brother Haki, you start off, the importance of the workers being politically educated? By being politically educated, what would it do for how decisions and how power has been and is being weighed around the world? Brother Haki, talk about the necessity for particular education when, when we talk about the workers? Yeah, well, I think political education for workers is particularly key. Specifically, when we're talking about uh, this, this social contract that's supposed to exist among, between the, 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 um, the, the employers and the laborers. And so we understand, and, and for me, given my skills in terms of producing things, then you prosper, but in turn, you share some of that prosperity with me, the worker. And so it's important that people understand that. Unfortunately, with the situation now, which most people tend to believe that, in fact, that the, the, lab, the employers hold all the cards, and so therefore they're resident, resident uh, to actually confront, uh, you know, the, 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 the employer of the fear that, you know, if they speak out, then their repercussions in particular will be maybe being fired. But in understanding in terms of the role of labor, I think it's important that once, once the people, workers come to the realization in terms of the importance of labor, then it hopefully gives them a newfound strength in terms of being able to understand that by working together, you in fact can uh, articulate your concerns and your grievances that you have with respect to the workplace. So I think in more, more of that, that, but equally as important, I think, also one of the things I think is that when we talk about in terms of importance of labor, and we talk about the fact that even though in this technological age where labor increasingly is being eliminated, uh, the bottom line is that, you know, to, for workers to advocate in terms of, you know, um, revenues, but it's all purpose in terms of retooling and retraining workers in terms of this new economy. But it only can come about with some, some resolution or some understanding that uh, we as workers, you know, have to work together and we have to demand that these kind of things take place. So without the knowledge, without the understanding in terms of, you know, how the system operates, then I'm afraid that uh, people don't understand in terms of the necessity in terms of actually working together to bring about the desired change. Education is key in terms of workers, in terms of understanding precisely how the system works, what role they play in that system, and what things they have to do in terms of creating a better, uh, a, 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 a better result, you know, for working in the context of that system. 
Thank you, Brother Hackey. Brother Moses, as welcome, it's become very important for us to begin to understand our worth and our value. We need to know why we do the things we do and how it may impact on our community. So from your perspective, Brother Moses, you speak to the issue of the importance of prison education as, as it relates to the workers, Brother Moses. Certainly. Thank you, Brother Africa. You know, we need this. All people, race, creed, color, whatever, all people need to study world history and study world philosophy. All people, everyone, we need to be educate ourselves to the highest degree possible. It's in order that we can contribute as much to humanity as possible. The, our goal should be to leave the earth in a better place than it was when we came in. And um, so... You know, as, as workers, we we are destined destined to uh, um, solve the world's problems uh, by collective collective uh, input and collective uh, negotiations, collective uh, strategizing, collective working together, collective communication. And we can solve the world's problems. These are human problems. Then, then we can solve them. And uh, but we need to. We have to be educated in order to do that. And so we should all be striving to get as much education as possible. Uh, the the to keep politics in command. Basically, the the, the what is what's best for the for the world people is what's best needs to be done. And we need to keep politics in command and serve the people. It's the highest good. It's to serve the people. And so, you know, in order to do all this, we have to be educated. We have to, the mass movement requires a mass of consciousness. And and, and, and if we're going to be, um, we're going to have to at some point take leadership and take leadership and, uh, and, and be a light out here in darkness and show people what needs to be done. And, uh, and you know that's the purpose of our education, and we it's, it's from the masses to the masses. We learn from the masses, and we get contribute back to the masses what we've learned. And so, you know, I think you know it's a never-ending dialectical process of study and practice, study and practice. But uh, the working class is destined to take control of it of its, itself to be a class not just in itself, but a class for itself. Which means a consciousness and a direction and a and a, and a, and a plan and a program of action. Um, thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Sister Shirley, one of the things I noticed when we look at uh, the trade unions and their so-called leadership, many times the trade union leadership is really at odds with the rank and file workers when it comes to economic policies and interests and etc. So I'm just wondering in terms of uh, when we talk about the importance of trigger education among the workers, what do you think can be done to make sure that we empower the workers in terms of not only to understand not only to not understand what they're doing, but who's directly benefiting from what they're doing? What's your position on this question necessity for the workers? I'm talking about the rank and file to be politically educated because I think if they are politically educated, they will have a a a a, a union. 
I talk about leadership at the top, that many times it represents more of their interests. Uh, just your response to that scenario, Sister Shirley. What do you think? I, I think you yes, you made a very very good point with the, the the problem about the top of the leadership of these huge uh, unions uh, not uh, moving in ways that are of benefit to uh, the actual workers. And uh, I kind of wondered uh, in general about the um, group of workers that that, that uh, refused to take the shipment. And I know that they were a member of a particular uh, union. It's, it, was, it was written in Italian, so I can't uh, read it. But anyway, and uh, it occurred to me, I, I'm curious uh, if, if, they are, if they are attached to a union that is in this position that you just discussed, of where there's a friction between the upper management of it and uh the 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 workers themselves and taking a decision uh, a good bold decision to not have anything to do with helping um israel get uh weapons obviously however that all happened this was a group of people who had decided that it was important that they take a stand. And this uh, this solidarity that they had among themselves is what propelled them uh, to make the stand and to walk away from it. I also understand that the next day that they decided to set up an uh, an investigation to try to find out what additional shipments were coming into that particular port on upcoming days. And they found out uh, that there was additional shipments that were going to be coming in. Um, it didn't say any more about what actions they were going to take. But here's an instance in which they decided to continue to educate themselves Having taken the stand regarding this initial shipment, they decided to find out what else is coming so that we can prepare to be responsive. They also, the next day after they uh, refused to handle the shipment, they uh, went to uh, an Italian uh, protest in support of Palestinians. And uh, evidently, they were well-received when they got there because by that time, people had begun to hear of their efforts at refusing the shipment at the port. So what this all amounts to is uh, workers with uh, the education to make decisions, and that also includes decisions about those with whom they're seeking additional uh, solidarity and working more and more collectively uh, to make changes in our world. Thank you. And Sister Eleanor, your take on this issue, on this issue of the importance of political education as it relates to the workers. What's your take on that, Sister Eleanor? Um, 
Thank you so much, uh, Brother Africa and everyone. Um, uh, education, one great person once said, uh, education is liberation. So in order for us to move forward as a people, as environmentalists, as human rights activists, as Pan-Africanists, uh, education is the our tool. And uh, well, we, we definitely need to see greater worker education, as we saw uh, in the last month with Amazon and its attempt to organize a union. Um, I dare say uh, if we had better tools and if us as citizens and as uh, workers had greater access to each other and the movement that that union would be today. So education is uh, the key to everything. Now the question is what type of education I think that uh, since most of us are workers, that politically speaking, a curriculum from elementary school forward should focus on the fact that we're workers and that we work collectively. And uh, uh, many people uh, grow up without knowing uh, that they are a part of the workforce. They they don't realize how they're going to fit in. And uh, we can change this by simply uh, educating ourselves. And so to answer your question, uh, education is the our greatest tool to liberation. So it's 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 the only way we can go forward. Uh, um, what we see happening, for example, in Palestine right now, um, if we listen to the news, it, they say it's an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Well, it's not a conflict because Palestine is an occupied state. So if we knew a little world history and political world history and geography, we would know this can't possibly be a conflict because this is an ancient nation that was occupied by persons from the West, no matter what their religion, no matter what their race, and that the Palestinians are living with apartheid, that apartheid wasn't just something that happened in South Africa, but it's happening right now in Palestine. And uh, that's an example of uh, education. I certainly couldn't pick up the Washington Post and, and realize this, but through study and uh, commitment to as an environmentalist and a human rights activist, I have learned this over time. I always recommend that people read this little short book. It was written in 1929 by Carter G. Woodson. It's called The Miseducation of the Negro. And all it does is talk about really the development of curriculum and how important it is that uh, indigenous people and uh, uh, ethnic minorities uh, learn about their place in society where they are so that they can better understand the placement of others and to unite uh, globally. So 
Um, that's 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 it in a nutshell. As we sit here and see uh, uh, our brothers and sisters dying uh, in in Gaza and Jaffe, Jerusalem, uh, as as uh, the UN. Uh, there was going to be a discussion amongst the big four, and for some reason, our country, the U.S., shut it down. Well, I think U.S. citizens need to understand that Palestine is an ancient country, and it has existed, and there should be no political state uh, that calls uh, if there's going to be a state of Israel, perhaps it should be have a location uh, uh, somewhere in the West. Uh, since Zionism developed as a movement in the 19th century in Poland, perhaps uh, as I said, the United States. You know, we got uh, we have uh, the state of Wyoming has approximately the same number of people as. Uh, the District of Columbia, and those people, many of many of them must, I don't know whether or not those figures reflect the indigenous people that live on reservations, but uh, we should reconsider the situation in, in Palestine and uh, and uh, the idea of a state. I, I remember when I was a child in my neighborhood, uh, my uh, in high school, there were children that were after getting their nose job and a driver's license that were going off to this place called Israel, and they could immediately they were citizens of Israel and citizens of the United States. I I really uh, had always thought that uh, that was incorrect, and that uh, all people should be able to live free in their countries of origin and that we not form a state of uh, any particular religion. That, that, that just seems outrageous. So that's it, Brother Africa. I, I, I don't know really uh, uh, what to say. I have been, this week has just been shocking that the things happening on planet Earth could happen. They, they're outrageous. 4,000 people dying a day in India. Uh, education is liberation. That's all I can say. Education is liberation. I hear you, Sister Eleanor. Only, only one concern with that statement I would just say is Political education and liberation, because we all are educated, and we'll be educated whether we want to or not. The society will do that. But with the kind of education, it must be the kind of education that you are conscious of your worth, your well-being, and you're being used not as a tool for someone else, but you develop a tool to be used for what you want to be used for. So um, I hear my sister. But, Brother Haki, I will come back to you right quickly, um, Brother Haki. You know, in one of your dissertations, you spoke about the collaboration and support that U.S. played a role in terms of uniting Europe and, re- and redeveloping Europe um, back together after World War II and how they have created also programs 
to undermine Russia, the Soviet Union, the other blocs. They don't think like them. Now, I find that interesting because for years ago when George Bush was in so-called White House, uh, he made a statement in which he says that we too are a European country. He understood that there's a direct relationship and link and, and, and bondsmanship between Europe, Europe and America. Now, can you talk a little bit more, Brother Haki, about this question of U.S. participation in making sure that there was a strong Europe uh, at certain historical points of time? Because, you know, there's this, 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 this ideal in this society that when people get help, you know, they see it as a form of welfare. And when so-called poor people access assistance, people look at that as being bad. But when other large nations and nations of, of, of European powers get assistance, uh, that is called a good thing. What's, what's your take on, on that phenomenon, Brother Haki? Talk to me. Yeah, well, you know, let us let us not be confused in terms of you know uh, what socialism entails. Uh, clearly, the United States understood, in order for to carry out its objective, it needed partners, it needed people to, uh, to participate in terms of the raping and subjugation of the world. And so, they, in order to achieve that, they realized it was very important to have a united Europe in place in terms of achieving that objective. Uh, one of the things is that when we, when we talk about in terms of the evolution of the European Union, a lot of people are on the assumption that the European Union is some, some idea that was um, innately sprung up, you know, from the populace in Europe in terms of desire, in terms of, you know, creating a, a unified Europe for its own purpose in terms of facilitating trade. But that's not the origin of the European Union. The origin of the European Union is simply to, to ensure the, European, the, 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 the continent of Europe acts as a vessel state for the United States. And being a vessel state for the United States, it carried out the, the, the interests of the United States. Uh, of course, the people who are wealthy, the capitalist class in Europe, understand that phenomenon. Unfortunately, a lot of the people, the working, the, the work ranking file, don't understand that. And they see the, this, this whole question in terms of European unity as something that's, that's beneficial to Europe. And it has nothing to do in terms of the benefits of Europeans generally. It has more to do with the benefits of wealthy Europeans. So we're very clear on that point. So the United States understood that fundamentally. So aside from, you know, actually large expenditures to make sure after World War II uh, Europe was rebuilt, the U.S. understood, you know, that uh, the relationship in terms of this uh, 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 class was a factor. But in addition to the question of class, but there's also the question in terms of race. Because one of the things that when you, when you talk about the conflict, the historical conflict between Russia and the United States, a lot of it has to do with race. They don't see Russia as a white nation. Uh, Russia got a thousand number of agents inside of Russia, but they sim- essentially don't see they see Russia somehow non-white. And so a lot of the antagonisms that exist that exist in America are the direct result of historical understanding or mis- 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 misconception. Then it's fact that that somehow uh, Russia is not white. The Russia's other than, and so therefore that accounts for the kind of um, antagonisms, the kind of hatred that's continually leveled against Russia. Uh, you know, but also when we talk about the question in terms of, you know, uh, of communism, we understand that, you know, when you talk about communism, essentially what you're talking about is people evolving on a higher level, people's ability to understand that your interest is lies in the interest of other human beings. And so, therefore, you understand that fundamentally to export other human beings is to do a disadvantage to yourself. 
So it's a, it's a higher state of consciousness, in which, of course, we're a long way from that consciousness. But that's what um, excuse me, uh, um, communism seeks to achieve. Now, the biggest fear as far as the United States is concerned is once the people are educated to the reality in terms of what communism really means, then there's a real fear that, in fact, that, uh, people may submission. I'd much rather have a system in which, you know, we can coexist peacefully, we can get things done, and we create a cohesive society in which all of these isms that exist in the context of capitalism cease to be, be a factor in terms of society. Well, the ruling class understand that that's simply um, a, a, a simply a, it will be a disaster as far as they're concerned. As far as their interest is concerned, they're not concerned. They're, they're not interested in anything that's going to undermine their power, their or their stability or their status. And so that status and that stability that they maintain is a direct result of the in, the, 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 the impoverishment of the mindset uh, of the people, not just literally in terms of in terms of you know impoverishment in terms of you know being, not having access to food and, and shelter. But literally, in terms of spiritually impoverishing people to the extent, you know, that they're willing to uh, simply uh, put up with anything under the guise of, you know, being civilized. So clearly, you know, yes, Brother Africa, you're absolutely correct. This question in terms of socialism, the United States understands fully what that means. And so when they when they when they advocated for the United States of Europe or the European Union, they understand precisely what they were doing and why they were doing it. It has nothing to do in terms of the the aspirations for the overwhelming number of European people. It has more to do in terms of um, um, the ruling elites. And so you have all these international structures that, you know, earlier I talked about the Bilderberger Group, you know. So we have these, 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 these factions that exist, that control, this, uh, uh, that control uh, Western, not only intelligence, but Western economic moves around the world. And so, so we have this unified uh, situation, this, 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 this unifying organization that exists both in America and Europe for the sole purpose of maximizing uh, exploitation to its fullest. And so, therefore, the United States understand that. So, fundamentally, anything that questions that system is a threat to, to, to the ruling elites, both in Europe and America. And so, therefore, the United States understand that. So, this notion, in fact, that they're committed to humanity, they're committed to fairness, they're committed to justice, those kind of things are anathema to uh, U.S. ruling class. Because they understand that if those things come to fruition, uh, their days are numbered. And so, they fight hard to reserve you know, uh, the way things are. Just had a brother Anthony to join us. We're going to go to brother Anthony and ask him, what's going on, brother Anthony, in your world community? The mic is yours, brother Anthony. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Sorry. I, 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 I didn't expect to get, get, get access to there that quickly. Uh, let's see. Uh, first of all, um, want to point out that uh, African Liberation Day, Palestine, Day uh, is coming up uh, Saturday, May 22nd, is our annual commemoration of uh, African Liberation Day and Palestine Not By Day. Uh, coming up on May 22nd at 12 p.m., our theme this year is One Unified Socialist Africa, One Palestine. And uh, we have this theme because um, only through uh, uh, through uh, unified permanent organization can both Africans and Palestinians defeat their enemies, which include all manifestations of imperialism, including capitalism, uh, Zionism, racism, etc. 
and uh, our uh, our webinar is going to start at 12 noon, and uh, people can visit our website, www.a-aprp-gc.com for more information and also uh, guidance on how to participate in our webinar. And also, uh, and also, they can find out our, our position on settler colonialism and Zionism, which we tend to, uh, you know, uh, uh, launch our position paper on that day. And also, um, more uh, locally, um, uh, there was. Um, a uh, uh, brother who was a manager at a Duncan in Tampa, Florida, who was uh, charged with manslaughter for uh, fatally uh, punching a European that rather, uh, uttered a racial slur toward him. Uh, this, art, uh, this article appeared in the GRIO originally and was uh, published on yahoo.com. However, the article doesn't uh, uh, specify the racial slur that was uh, uttered at the brother. Uh, thank you, Brother Anthony. What we're going to do right now, I believe we have Sister Mamie. We have Sister Mamie on the line. She's a new caller. We're going to bring her in. Sister Mamie, what's going on in your world? And the community. Like show us the meaning. You can speak now. Hello, Brother Africa. Hello, Brother Africa. And all your guests, all the participants. Good evening, good evening, good evening. Brother Africa, I have been listening intensely. A lot of thoughts that came across my mind I wanted to say. I heard them reagated over the program. I am so glad that the people are injecting positive responses to your questions. I have learned so much, and I appreciate you being there and having your guests to share so much fruitful information. I'm looking forward to African Liberation Day on May the 22nd because I know I'll be able to blossom more in my knowledge of how liberation can take place and how people can unify themselves towards a common goal. I thank you so much for letting me speak. I thank you so much for being there, and I look forward to participating with you next week. And I thank you so much. My sister, it's an honor and pleasure for us to be able to come to your home this evening where we can collaborate and share information with our other. No, we thank you all that you have done and continue to do, not only for our community, but also for humanity. No, we thank you, sister. We are here for you. Um, right there, this is Alpha on the move. What we're going to do, well, let's take a few more comments before we go, move to our next segment. But I do want to encourage everybody again, as Brother Anthony stated, Africa, I mean, um, African Liberation Day, Palestine, and Knockback Day will take place this Saturday, the 22nd. Of May, and please go to this website to register, and you can go directly into the program. Go to www. 
www.a-aprp.gc.org. And register and check out the website. It's an education tool that teach you so many things about very facets of our people movement struggles. So check out the website by the All African People of Upshur Part of DC. Uh, what I did want to do also, Brother Moses, uh, in your earlier dissertation, you talk about the question of how the uh, United Nations back in 1977, I believe, they defined Zionism as in racism. For your own understanding, Brother uh, Moses, why is it that Zionism is racism? How do you equate the two, Brother Moses? Give us your thought, Brother Moses. Zionism is a narrow nationalist movement, um, uh, Jewish ideology, uh, narrow nationalism, uh, uh, trying to cordon off a uh, uh, market uh, of people. Uh, and um, it, it, uh, it, it's, it's for Jews, by Jews, and uh, and uh, and uh, you know it's, just, it's only to serve Jews. And so when you got a government, a, a state, a, you know this is not just some kind of charitable organization or something. This is this is a government, a state uh, uh, who who has who has legitimate use of force by definition. And so. When you have this state imposing a military set of the state imposing its will on the population, um, um, it's nothing. It, it can only it manifest itself as racism because because it's exclusively it's exclusive to one 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 set of people, which which is happens to be the Jewish people, uh, um, and so and those who claim to be Jews. Uh, I don't know. Sammy Davis Jr. was a Jew. Um, uh, I don't know, you know, where where we start drawing the lines, uh, uh, but but uh, uh, the whole idea that you can have a government in in the world today in 2021 uh, that's only for Jews only is is ridiculous. It, it can be nothing but apartheid and racism. It's separation by race. That's what apartheid is about. It's a it's a government exclusivity um, based upon race and segregation and oppression. And so this is the epitome of the bastion of, of racism and, and reaction on the face of the earth right now is is Israel. I mean that's it used to be South Africa, but now it's Israel. And so that's just the way it is. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Sister Shirley, earlier in your dissertation, I'd like for you just to respond to this uh, scenario. You know, on the corner, the brothers and sisters tell me that um, the people are getting played while the capitalists are being paid. And I'm saying that in reference to Sister Shirley, if I heard you correctly, you made a statement about $3.8 billion goes into Israel from U.S. as relates to their from policy, $3.8 billion of people money goes into that state. Now, my question to you is, is, do you believe that's a misappropriation of money to take that kind of money from people on this end and give it to a state that has a history of genocidal 
behaviors, oppressing nations. I mean, they do all kind of things of committing crimes against humanity. What's up with all this money going to the so-called state of Israel? What's, what's your thought on you? Maybe we should charge Congress for stealing the people's money and improperly using it. Some call it embarrassment. Some will call not meeting a fact you should um, on duty. What is your, your take on that, Sister Shirley? $3.8 billion? Talk to me, Sister Shirley. Talk to me. Yeah, this, this, this so-called $3.8 billion, like like I said, I think there's a hell of a lot more that, that's going through other uh, routes creation. What what we're doing is we are buying a crime that uh, Israel is committing. So it's uh, it's not misappropriation. It is uh, a totally illegal donation of money that we are making to Israel to be the sheriff over in the Middle East. There, there's a famous uh, uh, clip of Biden uh, standing up in Congress uh, as a young senator and saying, you know, if there wasn't an Israel, we would have to invent one to make sure that we can control the area over there. Kinds of crimes that are, are being committed with U.S. money uh, are, 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 the, are the kind of the absolute worst source. Here it is, the, the Palestinians are an occupied people, and their occupier under under United Nations uh, decree uh, has a responsibility in order to not bring them harm. That they do every day because they the 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 state of Israel is engaged in ethnic cleansing. So Biden and most of the Congress all have blood on their hands for continuing to allow U.S. Po- uh, policy to continue the way it is done year after year after year. Um, and so I, I, I think that Biden is going to, not that it's going to change, but I do want Biden to be confronted with this issue uh, more directly, more loudly, and I want the, war, the 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 phrase of blood on his hands to be used in the challenges. Like I said, I don't expect U.S. policy to change, but we have to begin to, uh, uh, when it comes to education, we've got to let people know that this money when it goes to Israel it is doing nothing but an ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people and it is done in some of the most brutal ways we have ever observed certainly 
on videotape. Um, so uh, it is it is a shame that we are still connected with this crap because the state of Israel. Uh, Israel uh, is consists of two right wing parties with a small teeny left enclave. This state is going to continue to do whatever it can to provoke the Palestinians so that it can continue to smash them under the guise being the state of Israel. I read one article, and I'll close after this. I read one article earlier today that the author was afraid that the state of Israel might even go back to destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque. If that happens, that will be the ultimate provocation. And God only knows what will happen afterwards. But if we've learned any lesson at all with these damn Zionists, they will do anything and everything, and we should never be surprised in what it is. Okay, I'm done. Thank you. <laughs> okay, Sister Shirley. You're doing an excellent job. Keep up the good work. And to my sister Eleanor, earlier in your dissertation, sister Eleanor, you said something I think is very important. And I'd like for you to maybe, if you can, further elaborate a little bit on it from your perspective. You talk about how the U.S. has allowed the banks to be, um, to have less legislation or less regulation. They uh, allow them more freedom to, um, operate and move money with less accountability. Um, why is that important to know, um, since I don't know, the banks have more freedom, less re- uh, re- uh, regulations to do as they please? Brother Africa, um, the deregulations of banks in the United States have meant that we have uh, banks are operated, they are the ultimate uh in the capitalist economy, but the unfortunate thing about this situation is that now our banks are internationally known, and how money is moved is not scrutinized, and we don't know what's going on. But I, I have to transgress for a moment, Brother Africa, because this issue of Palestine right now is outrageous because there were 950 Israeli airstrikes on Gaza in seven days, 52 children murdered at least. And they're claiming that these this Hamas, some, some little group in, 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 uh, amongst the Palestinians, uh, launched 2,900 rockets. Well, those 2,900 uh, rockets aren't doing a good job because we know one thing. That whenever people are being beat down, they don't keep uh, uh, destroying your schools and hospitals. But what's happened here is that 40 schools and four hospitals were completely or partially destroyed in Gaza this week. 
and 18 buildings, including the 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 high rises. I told you, I witnessed that, as Sister Shirley said on video, including one uh, housing several press offices uh, had been completely raised. And uh, what's happening in Gaza right now is the electricity is uh, not working, so that means that folks can't, uh, uh, the hospitals can't operate. There's a problem with sewage as well as, you know, electricity uh, handles the movement of sewage. It handles uh, the functioning of hospitals. And these schools where normally civilians would go and seek shelter have been destroyed. So this, this is racism. This is racial cleansing at its max. And we continue in the modern world to watch the uh, racial annihilation of people globally. We saw it in the former Yugoslavia, but nothing have we seen ever on earth in modern times that we are witnessing in 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 Gaza right now. Now the the concern with that mosque is that the Palestinians in Jerusalem tried to put up fencing to protect the mosque, but they received no assistance from the Israeli police or military because at no time do Palestinians have any participation in the Israeli government. We talked about them having two parties and a small left. What's important is that whatever parties they have, the Palestinians are not allowed to participate. How are you going to have a democratic government when you have a whole class of citizens that are denied participation? And these are, and this is ridiculous. This is like the, the uh, electrical shortages. How are hospitals going to operate without electricity? How are schools going to operate without electricity? How are the journalists going to be able to report what's happening in Gaza if the building where they're in has been bombed and obliviated, completely, uh, I'm sorry if I didn't pronounce the word correctly, but destroyed? So uh, we see... Uh, one thing on our president saying one thing on television, Israel has a right to defend itself. And you see this uh, 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 today, the uh, that uh, guy from uh, Israel, um, uh, Yahoo, Nahu, or what, uh, this horrible person talking about uh, uh, Hamas. Well, Hamas isn't the issue. The issue is Israel. And the issue is the Palestinian people's right to live and that they should not be being bombed, 950 airstrikes in seven days, destroying 40 schools and four apartment buildings, including one housing the Associated Press and other folks. There is no justification for this. And the U.N. doesn't seem to be standing up speaking against this. Linda, uh, the U, uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, her comments were weak, and, 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 and she called for end to Palestinian rocket attacks, but nowhere did she mention, stop killing the Palestinians, allow medical 
they're not allowing the medical support to get in to assist the Palestinian people after these 950 airstrikes. They're not allowing emergency workers, uh, Palestinian emergency workers from other areas, from Jerusalem and other places, to come in and pull the injured and the dead from these demolished buildings. And you have to know you're killing civilians when you bomb schools, and that's where they go when they're when the air raid sirens ring. And what is this doing to the young Palestinian children that they, for seven straight days, just hear air raid, air raid strike after strike? And and at the end of uh, Ramadan Eve, so many people being slaughtered. This is a uh, this is a clear outrage. And as far as uh, you asked me about the deregulation of banks, well, the deregulation of banks have uh, affected how you and I can have an account. If you if your grandmother happens to lose uh, a bunch of money from telephone scammers, at least someone's out there looking for it. But if she loses her money because she forgets to read her bank statement and they give her so many months to report any losses or mismanagement, and she doesn't do that, that money's lost for good. Where does that money go? For example, if you if there's unclaimed money in a particular municipality, that municipality will periodically publish a list letting people know by name that there's potentially money that belongs to them that was lost. But so far, I haven't seen these banks doing that anywhere. I see no said list. So where do these funds go? That I don't care if it's $23 in the account. Uh, you have a, a, a few hundred thousand, twenty-three dollar accounts that go unclaimed, and we're talking about millions of dollars. So what I I, I think that uh, it further undermines the working class. I think it also undermines the United States and. Uh, you can't have the United States up for sale and then expect to reclaim it. Just won't happen because this isn't uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, this is the United States, and the reason I say it's not Zimbabwe when uh, South Africa was liberated and the Zimbabwe people stood up, they had the uh, they, the the whites had an opportunity to live there and keep their land or. Uh, other things were annexed by the state. But the United States is not going to be able to annex anything from these capitalists that is selling everything to. And the idea of anyone being able to come to the United States that understands finance or has their degree in finance and banking and is able to establish a bank, uh, a bank is outrageous. That's what deregulation of the banks means. Now, we protested against Riggs Bank forever because of his support of apartheid. And however, we never imagined that Riggs Bank, the president, the Bank of George Washington would be sold uh, to a Pennsylvania-owned bank. Well, look around and find out who owns your bank. Your bank might not even be owned by a domestic corporation. This is what deregulation means, a loss of control of American capital by American people in my opinion, and I am not an economist. 
but I just cannot uh, go beyond this horrible devastation that is going on as we speak in Palestine at this very moment. It's it's, it's, uh, outrageous. And we need to uh, stop talking about domestic welfare and look at our international support of these corrupt governments and redirect that capital to the U.S. and maybe our neighbors like Cuba forming a solid alliance between the United States and Cuba, a solid alliance between our neighbors and all our neighbors on planet Earth. We need to support health care, education. As I say frequently, uh, women, this is a new global movement, PINK, where it addresses the issue of educating women and children. And as a part of that education, they also receive seeds because if you can grow food, you can take time to educate yourself because the hungry people don't have time for study. They only have time for armed struggle. So they make sure that uh, the participants in pink have seeds and are learning agricultural skills so that they can raise food for their communities while women and girls are being educated. So I just have to say that uh, it's about time and the United States should participate in educating its women and girls because we are undereducated in this country. Women and children are vastly undereducated, and now is the time to change that for the good of the nation, the good of the world, and most importantly, for the good of Mother Earth so that we can all be responsible environmentalists and reduce our carbon footprint for the earth for future generations to come. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. What we're going to do right now, we're going to bring this section to a closing. Before we bring it to a closing, there's an announcement, an important announcement I'd like to make to our listening audience. I want you to put this down on your calendar, the dates of May the 17th, which is tomorrow, Monday, and May the 19th, which is this upcoming Wednesday. We'd like for you to be aware of that Pan-African Roots invite you to the following Zoom meetings. One it will be Notes from the Barricade with Bob Brown, The Wall to Prevent the Rise of the Black Panther Movement Party in Illinois and the World. That will be on Black Power Media on YouTube with Brother uh, Gerald Ball. I believe he uses quotation. I, I mix what I like and I like what I mix. His show Go to YouTube, Black Power Media. That's Monday, May the 17th at 12 p.m. So please check out Brother Bob. He'll be speaking on the war to prevent the rise of the Black Panther Movement Party in Illinois and the world. And also he'll be a special guest for Note from the Barricade with Bob Brown on Africa on the Move. That's right. He'll be with us. We'll be doing a special program. This Wednesday, May the 19th, from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. He will be a guest speaking on the same thing I mentioned earlier, the war to prevent the rise of the Black Panther Movement Party in Illinois and the world. Now, you're really talking about a, a, a interesting brother who has served his people and been in the movement for over 60-some years. Uh, check out Brother Bob. Uh, 
Please tune in this Wednesday on Africa on Move at 12 noon and share with your friends to so check them on out. So put those two events on your calendar again tomorrow on the 17th on Black Power Media. Um, check out YouTube. He'll be speaking on Jerry Ball program. And on Wednesday, he'll be here on Africa on the Move at 12 noon. So that's on the 19th. So that's a quick announcement right now. We're going to this break. And when we come back, we're going to entertain the theme today, part two. This is what freedom looks like in the U.S. In reality, we have been talking about some of the realities with freedom looks like in the U.S. So we'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move. Chains living in pain today is the same and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know. I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, to last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. must prepare and learn how to care, for soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a print 
departure became a place of strength, a place where faceless white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino is the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. Know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. If you think of the Middle East. In this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine Palestine. needs her freedom. freedom. Palestine. Needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, needs her freedom. Palestine, needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why. People cannot live, so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine Palestine needs her freedom. freedom. Palestine. Needs our love, needs our love, Palestine, Palestine, needs her freedom, Palestine, needs our love, people of all countries, of every race and creed, We need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love. 
and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. That's right. Palestine needs our freedom. Media I love, and they're going to get both. And we're going to do this by being in an organization and being organized. Because organization is the weapon for the oppressed. If you want to overcome your enemies, you must be organized. So we encourage our people, let's get organized. That's the only way that you can help the brothers and sisters and humanity to move forward, is to be properly organized through organization. Welcome back to Africa on Move. This is Brother Africa. We're in the seat. We're going to take the heat. As we define it, we're going to continue to stand behind it. We're going to move on now to our second part of the two-part series. This is what freedom looks like in the U.S. We're going to talk about this concept. We're in the con- context of certain articles and issues that are going on in our community. Recently, our articles have been written about uh, the remains uh, the Moon family members and how certain universities took these remains without proper permission and exploit these remains for their own benefit. There was a article written on the 28th of April where it starts off and reads, Concerning possession of the unethical use of the remains of the children of Moon and the African family a collective statement from the Association of Black Anthropologists, ABA, the Society of Black Anthropologists, SBA, and the Black and Bioanthropology Collective. That's the BIBA Association. They took a position on May, May 13 concerning how the remains of the Moon family has been used. Brother Haki, we'll start off with you from this article. How low can someone go? Your response is Oscar, Brother Hakeem. This is what freedom looks like in America, Brother Hakeem. Yeah, well, you know, can you hear me? Can you hear me? We can. Yes, we can. Okay. Yeah. The mic is yours. I'm getting, feed- I'm getting feedback. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Well, you know, this, this this is one of these cases which which is um, perplexing to say the least, Brother Africa. Uh, the mere fact officials found the necessity of actually taking those the the, the, the remains of those of their children uh, for purposes which is, have yet to be disclosed uh, raises question in terms of um, the, the morality of the system as it, as as it, as it exists. Uh, it seems to me that this lack of morality in the society, uh, this, this, this this notion that uh, the, it's the uh, those that count and then you have the others. So I think to a large extent, I think this 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 move, um, you know, to 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 just move those remains around, speaks to this notion that perhaps uh, the remains should be perceived as being a remnant of the other, 
And so, therefore, when you think about the other, you got to be very, very concerned in terms of the kind of uh, the, the the implicit implications, and those implications being, of course, the question around race and, and class. Uh, class, uh, in this particular situation, I don't think is particularly relevant. I think what what really um, compelled them to do what they did had more to do probably with race, because clearly uh, those remains were studied. And the question is, what were they looking for? I mean, these were individuals who were caught in the fire. So conceivably, either they were trying to um, they were trying to uh, conceal the fact. Uh, maybe they use a special agent in terms of um, as a accelerant that uh, that you know that, that burned that house down. Maybe they were trying to disguise that in an attempt to protect the city. Uh, but clearly, you know, uh, this 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 particular what they, what they this particular maneuver, what they did. Uh, I'm just I'm just um, dumbfounded in terms of I can't even begin to to understand the uh, the rationale behind doing such a thing, but at least I'm glad that the um, you know a lot of leading, leading African officials stood up and said, listen, this is this is unacceptable and this is inappropriate, and certainly um, um, it would give them a pause to think. So perhaps in the future these officials won't be so cavalier in terms of how they deal with the African remains. But clearly, brother Africa is for me it's very problematic. None of it makes any sense at all, so I'm still trying to figure out precisely what was the motivation in doing this in the first place. Brother Moses, we're talking about participation in this crime, the University of Pennsylvania, the University of Pennsylvania Museum. We're talking about the University of Penn. Um, what you make of the role of these universities? What should we think about these universities and their ethical behavior, Brother Moses? Well, you know, um, in that name of science, you know, all sorts of atrocities have occurred, and you know, these universities are intellectual institutions, and are founded by certain people of a certain race and certain conditions and conditioning they're exposed to, and uh, this this government's been one one of uh, racism and imperialism. And so, you know, we have to recognize that that has a universal effect. And that's why it's such a responsibility for someone inside the heart of the beast to to not recognize who they are and where they are and what time it is and what needs to be done. Um, I'm going to leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Brother Anthony, when we look at this article, what comes to my mind is this question of how when you critique institutions, you got to understand in terms of understanding from the context of the overall system in which they function under. Because, in fact, these institutions represent and function under um, capitalism. It seems to be um, fitting that they will imbue certain values and principles of a capitalist system. In other words, there's nothing they wouldn't do for their own self-interest. Your response, Brother Anthony? I think that is that, it, that, that your observation is correct, Brother Africa. And also it shows a disrespect of African people and African cultural values. Uh, to uh, to to show that level of disrespect for people that are deceased, 
and uh, and 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 their families. And uh, you know, and uh, it shows a disregard, uh, uh, you know, for uh, you know, for African culture and African people. And um, you know, the fact that they could be used uh, without uh, even uh, you know getting the consent of the families. Uh, you know, use these children for, uh, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, research purposes without at least, uh, you know, uh, you know, letting the families know or getting their consent shows, uh, you know, uh, uh, a very blatant disrespect of African people and uh, their uh, cultural values. And uh, that was the main thing I took away from this article, is that, um, you know, in spite of, uh, you know, our struggles and uh, the labor we contributed to the development of this society, this society uh, could care less about us. And Sister Shirley, what do you make of this phenomenon, Sister Shirley, of behavior at these universities and professors? I, yeah, I think I think it is uh, it is very bizarre. It is uh, it is very cool. Um, um, First of all, it's extremely cruel to to the people that of the family that survived to have to think that the remains of their loved ones were used in this uh, manner. And I was just looking up, and I'm sorry I did not send this to you, but Amy Goodman had Mike Africa and a Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, reporter by the name of Abdul Ali Muhammad, um, who in particular evidently has had a series of articles about the discovery of these bones being used by these um, institutions. And I don't have much more information than that uh, to give you, but there is a transcript in here that I'm looking at that might be uh, useful. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to let you know that, that and th- this, I believe this program uh, was on just within the last five days, it looks like. So re- this is uh, recent. I don't know if there's uh, a huge revelation in in here or not, but I did want to let people know as they go to the Democracy Now! site, uh, and the um, the uh, the title of the segment is "Harm Is Still Being Done." Thirty six years after move bombing, misuse of children's remains op- reopens wounds. Thank you, Sister Shirley, and. Sister Eleanor, as a woman, as a mother, as um, people who have family members, when you saw this article, um, what thoughts came to your mind, Sister Eleanor? 
Well, the ethical indifference shown by the uh, University of Pennsylvania, the coroner or the uh, Philadelphia, uh, the city of Philadelphia, as well as uh, Princeton University, it's no need. It's not. I don't need to say that's an outrage. But uh, the reality that these grieving parents, and on the anniversary of the Mu bombing, that we should uh, address this issue, I think, is very poignant. This gives the uh, anthropological society and anth- the anthropologists an opportunity to examine the way it handles the remains of African people and indigenous people. Uh, This is um, an opportunity to stop treating us as if we're objects and doing uh, online classes handling the bones of children. And I think uh, it should be mandated that uh, universities and places of learning that you such remains have in caption that I am using the remains of tree, a 12 or 13 year old child that was killed during the Mu bombing in 1986. I think that should be flashing across the screen in teletype while you're participating in that class. Um, I think um, the unethical handling of uh, of African remains and uh, of these children of, of, of the Mu family, of the African family is outrageous. And uh, uh, one of them spoke up at the anniversary in March uh, this week past, and I'm glad of that. And I began to see the press as Sister Shirley Kate mentioned uh, discussing uh, this with one of the African, now an adult African children of that time, and him discussing the memories of his uh, brothers and sisters there in the compound and their struggle for uh, racial and environmental justice continues. So I, as a woman, say we should stand united, or I stand united with the Move Move family and uh, the African family and the Move movement, and uh, hopefully we will uh, see a complete change in the way anthropologists handle the remains that it is in possession of and that they realize how important it is that these remains be interned. Uh, They need to be, the families need to be able to bury and put their children to rest. And uh, so many Native people uh, want the same thing. And uh, the legacy of Penn State is is going to be one of outrage, you know. It's the that anthropo- the history of the black dead Philadelphia children being used in their classes is is just 
an outrage. I'm sorry, I'm lost for words, uh, Brother Africa. But the article was very informative, and I am glad to see that the uh, Association of Black Anthropologists have stood up and taken a position on this, and uh, the Society of Black uh, 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 Archaeologists as well. So uh, congratulations to the ABA the SBA, and to the uh, Black and Bioanthropology Anthropological Collective. And uh, Thank you. It, it's amazing that in, in, in May of 13th of 1985 on 6, uh, 6221 Osage Avenue that the Philadelphia police decided to drop two bombs on a family. That's outrageous. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Moving on to the next article, we'd like to uh, direct our people attention to if we get a chance. We've we'll got this article coming from Penn State College of Liberal Arts. The title is, When Did Congress Last Declare War? by Rosa Eberly. Now, the title again is When Did Congress Last Declare War? When I look at this article, one of the things came to my mind is that um, figures don't lie, but lies do figure. And there's another saying that um, capitalism doesn't lie some of the time, it lies all the time. Now, when we talk about this question of what, what freedom looks like in in the U.S., this article typifies, you know, not only what it looks like, but how it operates. Now, there are supposed to be a constitutional law written where only Congress has the right to declare a war. But the question becomes, one, when will the last time Congress declare a war? That's number one. But number two, which is more important, how many wars has the U.S. been in since, 1990, since 1942? How do they get around this, uh, this, 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 this language, uh, this so-called uh, rule of law? Brother Haki, talk to me. What's your take on this? It's ironic that uh, for a nation that claims itself a de- democracy, then you got uh, these presidents unilaterally making these decisions in terms of warfare. And you're absolutely correct, Brother Africa. The, the U.S. Constitution is very clear on that point uh, when it says that the right to declare war is the sole domain of the uh, of the Congress. But but I find it extraordinary, Brother Africa, is that you don't have any politicians standing up and fighting for the the, 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 the reintroduction of that power to themselves. And as opposed to fighting uh, terms of resuming the power that's rightfully theirs, they acquiesce. They essentially give in to these presidents in terms of these these bombing raids, you know, these bombing uh, uh, um, situations throughout the world. So that in itself is problematic. So so anybody who thinks this is democracy. When, they, when essentially when you talk about the people in positions of power, the people who are elected, when they when they cow cow cower to 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 the deep state, then you know you don't have a democracy. So clearly, those people who are unelected, uh, those people who actually run the society, are in a position to make the decision in terms of whether or not the United States goes to war. And so, since 1992, uh, 92 in fact was the last time they actually the U.S. Congress actually declared war. Since then, that's been between that's been close to over 12, 12 13 wars the U.S. has been uh, uh, engaged in, and none of them had without the input of Congress. So clearly, this was not a democracy. 
And, and the mere fact that they, you have this imperial presidency, it speaks volumes in terms of, you know, the, the core question around the deep state. So a lot of people who don't believe the deep state exists, uh, but in fact, there are those people who are unelected, those people who have tremendous power, those people who bind the scene with one thing, clearly they're in charge. And so clearly it's something that we, we, we must contemplate if we're sincere about, you know, trying to at least bring some semblance of democracy, you know, back to this land. Brother Anthony, since nineteen forty two, how do we get around this whole question of going into battle, having walls of other country without being able to try it? For me, it's a game of psychology. Wall by any other name is a wall. I can be in war with you, but may just call it something else. Is this a game that the U.S. is using as relates to this whole question of going to war, Brother Anthony? What's your thoughts on this, Brother Anthony? Yes. Um, I think uh, it's a combination of that, as you point out, Brother Africa, as well as fear-mongering. And, uh, and, uh, you know, and uh, people have historically surrendered their rights. Uh, you know, uh, you know, out of fear. And I think I think that's the factor, and also the fact that uh, uh, no uh, none uh, none of the, no one in Congress or the Senate has uh, has. Uh, has taken on uh, the presidency for declaring war without the consent of Congress. And, uh, you know, and uh, that's a problem because uh, 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 the Congress is supposed to be accountable to the people that elected them and were until... uh, until the uh you know at large system uh you know uh came into play and uh you know the senate and the congress were 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 directly elected by uh by the the people and uh with uh, this delegation of powers to the presidency in the name of an emergency uh, that has been eroded. So uh, you know, uh, so uh, you know, there's less accountability uh, for how uh, you know the people's resources are spent, and uh, and it's the people that have to sacrifice resources and 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 bodies. Uh, to uh, to perpetuate wars that are in the interest of capitalists who are a minority in this society. Sister, thank you about that. Sister Shirley, you know, one of the things when we talk about um, this essence versus form is that we must understand that war comes into different forms. There are different forms of how war uh, can manifest itself. There are different types of walls. One can be physical, one can be psychological, one can be biological, but all of them are forms of war. Now, when we read this article, they talk about all the walls that the U.S. has 
has engaged in, but yet they never been declared. How do we get the people to understand that the issue of what war is and how it may manifest itself? What do you think about this article, Sister Shirley? What you took from it? Well, I, I think you have to explain first of all what you what you just said, and that is that war comes in many forms. And if you take a time period past uh, 1942 and you start looking at some of the uh, U.S.'s uh, imperialist forays, a lot of what happened is that, that the CIA, special forces, irregular forces on the ground, depending on the region and who it was, all were being melded together to begin the preparation and the groundwork for what would be a more heated and heightened conflict that would appear to be, quote-unquote, the war. And um, I agree that a lot, uh, a lot of this has been done so that uh, for anti anti imperialist uh, reasons, to keep the circumstances of how we got into situations uh, in other countries that later became a war that the U.S. Uh, uh, presented to us, uh, but it had the conflict had to start beforehand, and it had to be done secretly. And again, this is the proliferation of the CIA and uh, special forces. And, and of course, what we're seeing is uh, as, we, as we're actually going to be continuing the war in Afghanistan, and we're, we're not leaving there, this is a conflict of continued CIA, uh, government contractors, and other forces that are on the ground. So it has all been an attempt to hide from the American people what crap the U.S. continues to keep its foot in the middle of. Thank you, Sister Shirley. Brother Moses and Sister Eleanor, can I get you all respond to this scenario? We stated that warfare comes in different forms. One of the forms they've been using recently in the modern-day time they call it a embargo or a blockade. You know, they've been involved with Cuba ever since 61, even probably really before then. They've been at war with Africa since their arriving, arrival to shores of Africa. They're at war with Palestinians. They're at war with Venezuela. I mean, they are at war with over two-thirds of the damn world. So what is the valid importance of having a constitution that has in, has in words that only a certain process must take place in order to declare war, while at the same time you have other legal, so-called legal means of doing the same thing under a different name. Your response, Sister Eleanor, again, Brother Moses. Sister Eleanor. Well, I, I found the article very interesting, but uh, you, you can't help but notice when they say they declared war in 1942 that we were suspiciously 
not at war with Hitler in Germany and his uh and his death camp. So that's 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 rather odd, uh, Brother Africa and I noticed in the article they also forgot to mention uh Grenada. Uh, I remember when Maurice Bishop came to the United States and asked uh, 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 President Reagan for help and this and that, and he returned home only to be assassinated, him and his family to be murdered. Um, I think that uh, the United States needs to reexamine or to always examine the fact that there's three bodies of government uh, that make up this, quote, uh, democracy. And uh, that is the judicial branch, the legislative branch, and the executive branch. And I don't think there's been, uh, as, as Brother Anthony said, they they play on their fear mongers. So they make us afraid that something horrible is going to happen if we don't get involved and we don't send our young uh, people uh, to fight because it's not our young people that declare war. It's old men. It used to be predominantly old men. Maybe now women are joining in on the Hill. I haven't looked at their voting records recently. But uh, we we definitely need to reexamine our our policy on uh, establishing or entering into conflict. Iraq was definitely an example of that, and as is Afghanistan. Right now, the people of Afghanistan are in a a terrible crisis because of the fact that we've been there so long, and instead of a natural development that was occurring and occurs in any nation, in terms of women's rights, in terms of health care and education, that hasn't been able to develop. So we have an, one group of people that are slapping men in the face for not for cutting their beards, uh, uh, w- women uh, journalists being bombed for not wearing their, I don't know, uh, for speaking out. Uh, they certainly were wearing some form of a hijab, so it couldn't have been that. So um, I am a peace advocate. It comes from the Bible. And I think the only way we can change this in the United States is to address the issue that this republic is facing in terms of legislative action to suppress uh, voter rights in states like Georgia, Texas, Arizona, and uh, throughout the United States right now, I think there are about 27 skin action to uh, uh, repress voter rights. So the only way we can have an impact on where and if the United States is engaged in the war is if we maintain our very fundamental right to vote and to realize how the Voters' Rights Act has been attacked and, and, and how it's under attack right now. And so we have to support voters' rights. We have to promote voter registration, voter education, and uh, American education. And if we don't know that, simply look at the QAnon. We have millions of Americans that are virtually in a cult. Some guys were setting up a a gaming system some years ago, 
and they decided to make uh, some of us vampires and and this and that. And now we have a, a political organization where we've actually allowed one person to enter Congress from this place, uh, Taylor Green, for example. Uh, so uh, the only way I can see us getting a handle on where we enter wars and whether or not we participate in any wars and having Congress stand up is to have an educated Congress. And having an educated Congress starts with kindergartners today as well as the children of today and adults and that's through education and that's through political action where we work to uh, fight against the persons in, across the country who are taking legislative action to suppress voter rights. We need to reverse those uh, legislative actions and stand firm together and unite uh, we can never be defeated, a united people. And we are, the people are the power. The people are the ma- the means of production. And uh, the U.S. Uh, is, is, is in, it's in a terrible situation. It's at a turning point. We are uh, divided amongst ourselves. So we need to uh, stand up and protect voters' rights and this means protecting African American voters' rights because these are the rights that are people are struggling to suppress right now. We see we have our first Palestinian congresswoman coming out of Michigan and you know what Detroit is a chocolate city and that chocolate city allows for all people to experience democracy, to experience freedom. And we realize that as Pan-Africanists, we stand united with all people. To be a Pan-Africanist doesn't mean you have to be any race. You can be a Navajo and a Pan-Africanist. You can be, and every Jewish person isn't a Zionist. Zionism is a political movement that must be squashed. It must be squashed. So uh, this warmongering, we're participating today with that $3.8 billion that uh, Sister Shirley mentioned that we are giving to uh, Israel every year. And I understand we gave them an additional $1.8 billion this year during the pandemic, an additional $1.8 billion. And we try to even that out by giving Jordan and Syria and Egypt a little money too. We call that uh, maintaining peace in the Middle East. Well, we can't maintain peace with guns. We do. We 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 have peace through dialogue, through finding common ground and developing the skills able to rule and and stand up in their own country, Palestine, and not be subject to a colonial military settler state. That's, that's it. Brother Next, Brother Moses, your thoughts, Brother Moses. The mic is yours. You call me? Yes, the mic is yours, Brother Moses. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm I'm at I'm at um at a stupor right now. I'm I'm really 
Don't know what to say, uh, uh, I'm gonna pass no, no problem, Thank brother. No, no problem. We'll come back to you. To you right now. What we'll do? We'll continue to move forward. And as we talk about the theme tonight, part two. This is what freedom looks like in the U.S. Man, brother Haki and the rest of the panelists, move on to the next article. We'll ask our people to Google this article up. Title: Elephants hunts at seventy thousand dollars a head to fund Zimbabwe National Park. Let me read the opening paragraph to this article, which I find real interesting because when we talk about war, we read war, the Western we read war with animals. But check this out. It says the Zimbabwe plans to sell the right to shoot as many as, many as 500 elephants for as much as $70,000 per animal to help fund the upkeep of the natural parks. The, the hunting season which take place over the southern hemisphere winter will resume this year after the coronavirus pandemic supersede plans to have elephants shot by foreign tourists in 2020. Now, I find this very real interesting predicament because, number one, it's talking about a country, Zimbabwe, i.e. so-called Zimbabwe, is in a position of they need to... Um, allow people to play games of hunting and shooting down their natural uh, resources, i.e., in this case, it's the elephants. And when we talk about they, we are talking about the West. It's just by the indication of you're talking about $70,000 per shot or per animal. Who has that kind of uh, 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 access, means, or resources money? Brother Hockey, when you read the article, I was sort of conflicted with this whole question in terms of whether or not, you know, um, number one, uh, how do we, um, or how did we get in this position of being in a position where we have to use our animal to sacrifice for the interests of, let's say, of, 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 of the country as a whole, if that is a story? What you take from the story? Because I find it real contradictory. The same people want to hunt and shoot animals, they the same ones who created the conditions where Zimbabwe is not fully um, reducing and carrying out their ability economically to be self-sufficient. Your response to that scenario, Brother Haki, in the article? Yeah, well, there is no question um, Zimbabwe's economy is being hamstringed. The uh, Western powers have been working very hard to ensure the um, the undermining of the Zimbabwean economy. Uh, starting with the, uh, uh, Robert Mugabe, uh, their intent was always to bring you know Zimbabwe to his knees. Specifically, when Zimbabwe uh, uh, talked about the importance in terms of redistributing the land, so that was a source of contention as far as West was concerned. And uh, this notion in terms of you know. Uh, uh, giving the land back to the indigenous people was some something that uh, was in the interest of Western Western world, and so they fought hard to undermine the Zimbabwean economy. Now the question in terms of you know uh, you know need of money, I mean certainly we we understand the necessity in terms of foreign exchange in terms of for the economy, and that is important. But one of the things is that when you talk about the elimination of um, elimination of animal population you know, in Zimbabwe. It has deeper ramifications, and that is that you know, one of the things that you alluded to, Brother Africa, is when you, when you talk about this propensity to kill, uh, one thing is very, very clear. You're talking about a system, and essentially, which is 
which is hallmark, is, is, is to kill. And so, therefore, so this notion that someone would take pride in terms of killing such a noble animal, I mean, it raises the question in terms of just what kind of human being are you? So for me, you know, um, it, it seems to me that, you know, it's inexcusable. Um, even though despite the, the economic situation Zimbabwe is confronted with, the bottom line is that, you know, allowing, you know, wealthy individuals to come over to Zimbabwe for the sole express purpose of killing animals, uh, particularly uh, uh, elephants, to me, it 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 it's, it's, it it creates a bad um, it creates bad uh, it, it bad repercussions of you know for not just for the animal world but for the human world, and so when you, so anytime you start talking about that um, you know um, you know um, certain uh, a certain um, certain creation doesn't have the right to exist, once you go down that road, then inevitably you can devalue the lives of human beings, and so that's a fundamental problem. And, of course, a lot of people say, well, that's an ecumenical argument. You know, like you're talking about church. And it's not necessarily church. It's simply a question in terms of coexistence. It seems to me that, you know, you know first and foremost, we have to understand that we, we have to all coexist. And it has something to do in terms of spirituality per se, but fundamental understanding, you know, that these things existed long before, long before human beings evolved, that you had animals that in existence, you know, uh, living together. And so, therefore, who are human beings to come along and say, well, we're going to arbitrarily define, determine who lives and who dies in terms of the animal world. So for me, it seems, so it seems to me that it's sort of, sort of the, the epitome of what capitalism is all about, the kind of avarice and destruction that's so in, in, in part of capitalism. It's just manifesting itself in terms of people's desire to go to Africa, particularly Zimbabwe, for the express purpose of killing you know, these, these elephants. So let me just close and simply say, Brother Africa, you know, I'm, I'm in disagreement with that move by the Zimbabwe government, even though I understand the economic constraints in which it, it operates. But clearly, you know, the destruction of such a normal animal to me is problematic. Thank you, Brother Hagin. Brother Anthony, your take on this article and the situation of the contradiction of how the West, they have been at war with, with Zimbabwe, makes it very difficult for them to... Uh, be able to produce and be independently, but at the same time, they can find money to come and kill animals, but couldn't find money to live up to the Lancaster Accord, where they should have compensated the farmers from the beginning, and not try to make the Zimbabwe people to compensate something that was naturally theirs. Your response to this article, Brother Anthony? Yes. Uh, I agree with the points that have been made so far. It's just that I want to add that uh, that this is one of the consequences of neocolonialism, which dominates Zimbabwe now. They do not have any solution other than capitalist methods of uh, raising money to sustain their national parks. And one of the questions that comes to mind is, who are these national parks for? Are for the are they for the masses of the people or are they for the uh, 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 Euro, European bourgeois tourists uh, that uh, that that uh, Zimbabweans are counting on to sustain these parks? And I think that uh, and I think that raises that raises uh, that's the question that I had in mind as I was uh, you know uh, you know reading through this article. And also, uh, in terms of killing that quantity of elements, it disrupts the ecological balance 
that existed that part of Africa. And if Africa was uh, politically united and organized, that those sort these sorts of measures would not be necessary. But uh, that goes to show how economically unviable most of these uh, political states in Africa are at the present time, is and that they cannot support themselves off of the resources that exist uh, in, the, in the lands as they're, const- uh, they're presently constituted and created at the Berlin Conference in 1884-1885. And, uh, and uh, it reflects how unviable these uh, political formations are in Africa and that the ultimate solution to this problem is Pan-Africanism, one unified socialist Africa. And uh, the situation with the elephants uh, points this out very clearly. Sister Shirley, you would take on this article. Yeah, I would like to agree with both uh, Brother Aki and Brother Anthony um, as well. Um, seeing that this article comes out of Bloomberg, I would also like to try to fact check it <laughs> um, as well. I agree with that. I was going to raise that. Well, go ahead. Yeah. yeah just, just, go ahead, Sister and, I agree with that point. Yeah. And uh, just it, and and the article, I don't know. It's it's a weird article too. On top of everything else, it's weird. Um, and it, well, what can I say? I would like to find out more uh, about the overall uh, situation regarding elephants in Zimbabwe from other sources other than Bloomberg and um, use that as a reference to be able to, to judge, you know, what's written here in this one. I agree. And I said to our listen audience, that is an excellent point to put in the back of your mind is to double-check, uh, particularly the slant of this article, the way it comes from, because when I first read it, it sounds sort of interesting to me as well in terms of what's not if the government would, would submit to this, this, the nature of this kind of policy based on how it is being described in this article. Um, let's move on to see Sister Eleanor and Brother Moses, y'all take on this article. Sister Eleanor? Well, um, as you know, I, I think there should be a ban on shooting elephants and uh, certainly uh, as the article said, it, uh, it depended on the size of the elephant. The licensing was anywhere from uh, the, the uh, I don't know what the licensing cost. I don't know what the hunters cost, but the the right to shoot the elephant itself, uh, the Zimbabwe government would apparently receive between ten and seventy thousand dollars per animal. I think that's outrageous and ridiculous. Now, if they were going to take, I don't think shooting any elephants is appropriate. And I realize that uh, 
I, I thought about this a lot, Brother African. I was saying, well, maybe uh, if the country needs money, maybe if they do old bulls that aren't a part of the, uh, you know, but elephants live in a family. Elephants grieve elephants. Uh, we're losing species of animals all the time, and it's only Zimbabwe and Botswana that have these large herds of elephants. And so the issue and the and the hunters are coming from the United States, Russia, Mexico, and the and the European Union. There should be a ban, and there should be a some type of global charge where, in order to even consider going and shooting an elephant, the price should be something like let's just start with an outrageous figure like a five million dollar. Uh, uh, land uh, uh, rehab fee, and then we go on with other fees from there. So if you're willing to put up your ten or fifteen million dollars to shoot one old bull, maybe but this ten to seventy thousand dollars to kill an elephant, absolutely not. And I don't. And and as I said last week, I don't think any elephant should be shot. And I don't understand how you handled the management of these animals, but I do know that in our lifetime we've seen them wiped out, and it's been wiped out because of deforestation, the loss of habitat. They're losing their habitat to Western uh, farming practices. And uh, I also noticed the article talked about loss of life, human life, and uh, human property. And and here we are, and they use the term conflict between elephant and man or conflict between animal and, and people. Everything's a conflict. I think when we deal with uh, everything as a conflict and everything as uh, not having advocates but having mediators, that in itself is a problem. That's problematic. We shouldn't view everything as a, 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 a either or. So I think that uh, we need to figure out other ways to make these parks sustainable other than hunting. And I think that's very possible. And uh, I, I, was, uh, I found the article informative. And just the fact that I understood there was a global ban on hunting African elephants. But uh, I understood from the article that uh, uh, Botswana had a five-year ban that's about to be up, and it didn't mention any ban uh, in Zimbabwe at all. And this is hardly the way to uh, uh, build sustainable parks. And I I understand that it's done in other countries and other parks, and they allow these hunting seasons in order to to control the uh, 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 the animal population uh, to quote promote its own success, uh, and uh, and they raise funds other places. But I think we can look at new models and new prototypes for conservation, and that would be the best uh, step going forward. And for this hunting season, I think uh, it should be a ban or it should not be allowed to go forward either in Zimbabwe or 
Botswana in effect. I think there should be a ban in 2021 and 2022 and allow uh, environmentalists to and animal conservationists to have a world conference on addressing the issue of elephant conservation and uh, sustainability. We need to protect all animals and their habitat. We've lost far too many species, uh, uncountable amount of species in the 20 and 21st century thus far. We don't want the elephants to go the way of the dodo bird. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. And our last article for tonight, as relates to our theme, part two, this is what freedom looks like in the U.S. You know that, um, hmm, what can you say? How people are always being used as a means to an end. When you look at this pandemic that's going on, and you're talking about the, the role of the healthcare workers. You would think there'd be more value today than ever before. But clearly, this article that is titled Nurses and Other Healthcare Workers Face Increased Violence on the Job. Brother Haki, can you dissect this article in terms of why the nurses are not being valued on their jobs today in healthcare workers, given the fact that are very critical to deal with and to help overcome this so-called pandemic that's going on. Seems like there'd be more value in terms of um, understanding that the role they plan now, the need to, that we need these kind of workers, but yet they are coming under extreme violence on the job. What do you make of that, Brother Haki? How do we deal with that, with, with this situation? And it's not being talked about in the general public. Your take on this, Brother Hackey? Yeah, well, I, I think the question of violence as related to nurses, I think it's inevitable. And, and I say that simply because the reality is that given the level of stress that people are, are, are dealing with now, we've got to understand that at some point they're going to act out in terms of dealing with that stress. And unfortunately, you know, in a situation like an a emergency room or hospital where people are, are in addition to the stress, People have all kind of you know medical melodies. Then you got to anticipate, you know, there's going to be some acting out on their part. And of course, in that context, our nurses are vulnerable. But in terms of their safety, we've got to be very, very clear that we're talking about tight profit margins. And for those people who who invest in these hospitals, uh, the bottom line is that um, it's profitable to have fewer nurses as possible. Given the gluttony of nurses who are unemployed, I mean, that's not a problem in terms of having other nurses, you know, uh, in positions. Uh, filling those positions, and so therefore their 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 their, their health of uh, the threats that they confront on a daily basis is not a particular concern. What is what is primary is the, the bottom line is the profitability in terms of those 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 institutions. So I'm not surprised at all that uh, they understand that if nurses complain, the reality the reality is that they're out the door. I mean they're not going to tolerate a whole lot of complaining. You know simply because they're, they're, they you can replace them. So, therefore, nobody should be surprised that given the current state of um, affairs as it relates to the, the kind of um, stressors in the, who are being subjected to in the society, that nurses bear the brunt of this kind of uh, displaced aggression. So I'm not, I'm not surprised at all. And, uh, but in terms of doing something about it, not likely. It's all about the bottom line, and that's just the, the bottom line. Brother Anthony, your take? 
I can I, I concur with a lot of the points Haki made. And uh and I think this is a manifestation of the um of uh you know uh the working conditions that uh that nurses and other healthcare staff work under. And uh and uh you know and it do- and it is highly stressful and it does take its toll. And it causes, and without, uh, you know, adequate, uh, you know, remedies and uh, fully, uh, you know, uh, fully employing uh, healthcare staff to the level that's needed, you're going to have outbreaks of violence, not only in the healthcare field, but in any sort of workplace in uh in uh in, in in capitalist societies because um uh let's see in a lot of cases in order to save money uh you know workers are worth are worth worse than machinery because uh, it seems like it's understood that ma- that machinery has to be maintained but when it comes to human beings, it seems that uh, management and the ruling class could care less, as long as there's uh, an abundant supply of cheap labor, and uh, and that's what uh, and uh, that's what contributes to violence in the work workplace. I mean, uh, I mean, take for example the mass shootings we hear about from time to time. Uh, you know, uh, you know that's another manifestation of work uh, of uh, workplace violence. You know, uh, people getting to the point where, uh, you know, they, uh, you know, that that they lose it, and uh, they lash out. At uh, at those that are closest around them, whether it's uh, is directly their fault or not, and uh, that's been happening, uh, you know, uh, since uh, you know uh, since capitalism emerged, uh, you know, during the industrial revolution, and uh, seems to be intensifying. Uh, because uh, the the uh, the ease of which we'll get weapons. Thank you, brother. Sister Shirley, there is a contradiction in terms of man- management. They don't see the workers as a extension of them. They are not willing to invest the kind of security, the kind of resources, the kind of protection to keep these nurses from being hurt on workplace in the hospitals. Now, understanding that contradiction, Sister Shirley, what does they say what does they say what does that say about society that that they really don't put value in, in their in their health care workers? Your take, Sister Shirley. Well it it says it's a it's a capitalist society uh, underperforming in, in a pandemic, and um, I think that the 
workers, there are uh, too few workers trying to take care of the volume of people and doing it in a way that they know is important uh, for them to maintain their own personal pride in what it is that they do. I think that, that all, the, all the trappings of uh, capitalism are all over the healthcare field, especially during this uh, pandemic. You layer that with sexism and racism on the job as well. Put on top of that an opioid epidemic. Yes, add the guns to the mix, and you have a recipe for extreme danger um, to our um, healthcare workers. Um, and uh, and that is is a real uh, sin within itself. And you know how much when you think about Cuba, you know how much they revere all the people in, in the medical profession there. They're so proud of of their nurses and doctors and and everyone. And I just feel as though that during this uh, time period, in particular during the pandemic, all of the uh, negative, awful attributes of, uh, of capitalism have been at work and at overtime. And it has been uh, detrimental to health care workers across the board. Thank you, Sister Shirley. And the final take on the subject, we'll, we'll go to Eleanor. Your comments, Sister Eleanor. Um, thank you once again, Brother Africa and everyone. And I concur with all the comments everyone has made this evening on many subjects and also uh, with uh, Brother Anthony and Sister Shirley on the and Brother Hakeem on the issue of uh, uh, healthcare workers. The Congress has constantly been. Congress has held the position that uh, they don't want to uh, overregulate. They, they they're opposed to the overregulation of business. That it should be business as usual. But as we know, our hospitals, whether they're 501c3s or whether they're for-profit, they're all for-profit. Look what these CEOs earn. And there's a division, a heavy gap in the, in the, for us as American workers. We don't value ourselves, so we definitely don't value each other. And so I see the biggest problem as being a lack of enforcing job safety laws that already exist and a continuous push in this country to ignore uh, labor safety laws and and health care laws that protect workers. And uh, uh, they're overworked, as so many of us are. They see uh, uh, oftentimes the nurses because they are paid better than other workers. The uh, workers going into the uh, hospitals feel uh, 
that they're uh, being looked down on or, uh, or disrespected. You see all this violence and, 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 and this outrage. But the, the real problem is a, a failure to have proper legislation that uh, regulates uh, and, and, and supports uh, worker protections. And I'm not talking about police. I'm talking about worker protections. That means developing the tools to allow for workers to have a safe place to work and be free from death and violent assault. And that's the job of Congress and the state legislatures and the local municipalities. So they need to do their jobs, and we need to pressure them to do their jobs in this this uh, capitalist economy. It's for the good of all of us. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. At this point in time, you're listening to Africa on the Moon. We're going to go to a Welcome to Culture Break. When we come back, each one of our participants and listening audience will give you a chance to just give us your final thoughts for tonight. This is Africa on the Moon.
Eles não ligam para gente. says they don't care about you. Welcome back to Africa on the Move. On the 16th day of November, 16th day of May 2021, we're closing out with the out with today's program part two. This is what freedom looks like in the U.S. We hope we are displaying some examples of the real reality of what we are talking about when we talk about the concept of freedom as people have experienced it when the, the borders of the U.S. Right now, with our political panelists and analysts for today's program, we're going to close out with our final statement, and we have some important announcements coming up that we'll follow. So right now, I believe we still have our sister Mimi on the phone. 
do want to give Sister Mimi a chance to see if she'd like to say the final words. Sister Mimi, we thank you for your support today. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listening audience? Sister Mimi. following the route that Ashley MacArthur gave us that they took, uh, looking for surveillance footage. They found this surveillance tape at a gas station. No, we're doing she says they stopped okay. by 10 here. I guess we move on Sister Mimi, and we are going next to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, and the final thoughts for the night program. Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you for being with me tonight. Uh, it's been a pleasure uh, to listen in and hear all the wonderful intellects at work, uh, certainly some of those beautiful minds uh, that we have, and um, and um I think when we put our minds on a subject, it's 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 it's, um, it's laid bare, and um, I think it just in Zimbabwe, um, you know, I I agree with um, we have to be skeptical about about uh, these reports because uh, this this capitalist news out there that, uh, has no interest in in supporting the Zimbabwean people and. Uh, and this uh, it's uncharacteristic, this this type of of inhumanity uh, um, uh, uh, with killing of these animals, and so I, don't know, I would be weary of this article. Um, what what is true and what's not true? Anyway, it's been a good evening, and I look forward to another eventful day. Thank you, and good night. Come back to you, Brother Moses. Next we go, Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, your final thoughts for the night. Well, I want to thank everyone and thank you um, for this uh, wonderful show. I want to say that um, I stand in solidarity with American workers and healthcare workers. Workers' health and survival has constantly been under threat. And I look forward to uh, next week and us going forward. And uh, let's just get on it legislatively, register someone to vote, and be ready to have your voice heard. And thank you so much. Uh, And thank you to everyone. It's just so insightful and such a learning experience. Thank you so much. Good night. Good night, Sister Eleanor, and we thank you. Next, we're going to our Sister Shirley. Sister Shirley, here are some of your final thoughts for tonight. The mic is yours. Yes. Thank you, Brother Lee. Um, I am looking forward uh, to hearing from Brother Bob Brown uh, speaking on his notes from the barricade uh, tomorrow and coming up on Wednesday as well. I'm also very much looking forward uh, to African uh, Liberation Day, Palestine Day, Nakba. Um, I know that Brother Anthony in particular has probably been working very hard on that. Uh, so I uh, will be tuning in and, and look forward to that. And in closing, as in keeping with the song, uh, Palestine uh, needs peace and Palestine needs our love. 
Good night. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sister Shirley, for your contribution to today's program. And we'll go to Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey, some of your final thoughts for tonight. The mic is yours, Brother Hackey. Yeah, I think it's important people understand that the problems that we're confronted with are essentially one of perception. So the government does a very good job in terms of managing our perceptions. Uh, for example, if I go back to 1942 and I look at the Marshall Plan, the U.S. spent $13 billion for the Marshall Plan. Uh, uh, and the, the so-called stimulus uh, comes out to $384 billion. But the reality is that it's, they spend considerably less than $384 billion, but the number they give us is $384 billion. So clearly it's an attempt to manage our perception. In other words, they're trying to get, they want us to believe that they have uh, interests at heart. Uh, Biden is also proposing, proposing a, a budget in 2022 of $1.5 trillion. Now, of course, the $1.5 trillion in terms of stimulus is not going to happen uh, because those people in positions of power simply are not going to go for it. Uh, so we're very, very clear on that. I'm not just talking about the Republican uh, uh, leadership. I'm also talking about Democratic leadership as well. So clearly, uh, you know, um, this, this management perception is something that we got to take very, very seriously. And let me just add one other thing. Uh, now, in terms of military expenditures, we're talking about between $987 billion to $1.7 trillion yearly. But when it comes to things like health care, um, affordable housing, uh, uh, jobs, those things that the real economy needs, there's no money for that. So clearly the people in positions of power are telling you that your very existence is esoteric. In other words, your very existence is unimportant to them. And so the question is for them is not so much what you can do to accommodate you. The question for them what can they do to liquidate you? What can they do to eradicate you to get you off of this planet? So even though people say, well, that's how probably that's how probably well, Haiki, you're just you're you're exaggerating. But the history is very very clear in terms of you know countries in the, when they decline in terms of their relationship with the masses of people in that society. Those people who are disposable, or those people who don't have means, or don't have wealth, those people have no real real attributes to contribute to the society at large. And so as far as the cap is concerned. You don't have a right to exist. This is the fundamental problem that we're confronted with. And so when we talk about managed perceptions, you got to understand that these people got no interest in terms of long-term aspirations. Understanding that, it's important we build, we create organizations, we have institutions, because, listen, if we don't protect ourselves, if we don't sustain ourselves, it's not going to happen. It's that, reverse, it's that simple. And I always encourage people, as usual, Brother Africa, to unravel the matrix, because that's key in terms of our longevity in society, because clearly as things deteriorate, uh, people in positions of power uh, have no use for people who don't have wealth or status. Now, close with that, Brother Africa. You have a good night. And you the same, Brother Hockey. We thank you for your contribution to today's program. And Brother Anthony, give us your final thoughts, and I would like for you to talk a little bit about Africa Liberation Day, how, where, when, and why we should support it. Brother Anthony. Sure. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, before I go into ALD Palestine Day, not by, I would like to, uh, clear up something that, uh, that people might have been confused about. And, uh, that is our tendency to conflate Zionism and Judaism. Judaism is a religion that originated in Africa a couple of th uh, thousands of years ago. And uh, it is one of 
of Africa's many gifts to world humanity. Uh, Zionism is a political movement that started in Europe uh, during uh, toward the later half of the 19th century. And it's a political movement that is characterized, uh, that is distinguished from other forms of capitalism by its use of Judaism to justify its uh, exploitation and oppression of the Palestinian people. And, uh, but uh, people should not confuse the two. Uh, just as they anymore, they should confuse uh, Christianity with uh, uh, with the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, they both uh, uh, these both these two evil systems both exploit religion to justify their ends, and it's another form of um, humanity using people as a means uh, to an end and uh, is totally against our principles. Uh, let's see, our theme for uh, ALD Palestine Day, not by this year, is One Unified Socialist Africa, One Palestine. And we choose we chose this theme because uh, without uh, permanent organization and unification, Africans and Palestinians cannot defeat all uh, all the forms of exploitation that they are saddled with at present, including uh, capitalism, racism, Zionism, and all other forms of imperialism. And uh, hopefully, if you have time, you'll check out our webinar on uh, commemorating ALD Palestine Day on May 22nd, 2021, uh, from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. That's this Saturday. And for more information, please visit our website www.a-aprp-gc.org and you can learn more about uh, our program and history as well as find out how to uh, participate in our webinar. So please go to our website which, uh, once again, is www.a-aprp-gc.org. Thank you, Brother Anthony, uh, for your contribution to today's program. And one other announcement we'd like to make and remind our listening audience, take this down and share this with your network. You are in for a treat. We have from Pan-African Roots, also invite you to the following Zoom meetings, which will take place this week. One will be Notes from the Parallel Cave with Bob Brown, The War to Prevent the Rise of the Black Panther Movement Party in Illinois, 
and the world. He'll be on the Black Power Media. Uh, you can check out on YouTube on May the 17th at 12 p.m. So that's tomorrow at 12 p.m. Check check Brother Bob out. He's a pan-athlete. He's a historian. He's an educator. He will travel. I mean, he's a he's a living history book, but more importantly, he's a practitioner, a theoretician in terms of how to organize our people and moving forward. He's a rare breed, so please check the brother out. And then we will have him on this platform on Africa on the Move, a special program. That's Wednesday. That's on the 19th at 12 p.m. Um, we have Brother Bob. He'll be speaking for Notes from the Barricade. So check him out on Africa on the Move at 12 p.m. This, that's on May the 19th, so please spread the word. Until next time, you have been listening to Africa on the Moon. I'm Brother Africa. We're in the seat. We're going to take the heat. As we define it, we all going to stand behind it. We agree that Palestine needs freedom. So does Africa. So does all oppressed people. The only way we can do this, and the best way to do this, is to get organized. Said Brother Kwame Ture left us a legacy of Understanding the necessity for organization, so we encourage y'all, please, we love your people, love humanity, love Cuba. We also encourage you to get ready, join us, write us at Africa on the Move 2. We'll be taking a feeder ride to Cuba from December 27th to January 3rd. So start making your plans now and spread the word. Until next time, we'll be on every Sunday from 7 p.m. until. So again, this has been Africa on the move, and like always, we agree with Marvin Gaye. We are trying to find out what's going on. We'll see you next week. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the end. For only love can conquer hate. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love and kiss here today. Take it light and take it fast. Don't punish me with brutality. Talk to me so you can see.
conspiracy theorists. What if Martin had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man? I wouldn't want to hear it. This integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. His last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming. It wasn't just a consumer. Controlling our narrative. We have more marriages. And see what the damage did. They ain't that bad a bitch. And welfare did its way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they paying me. Seemed like Nip had the same old story. If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory. Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was the mystery. Supremacy will go the extent to keep their history alive. All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive, who be on the internet trying to divide? And use a hotel hustler, trying to be a people of that low vibe structure. Agree to disagree, and we ain't got to tear our own down. Argue in silence, or forever be our own down. All I want to say is that we're giving it away. Soul ain't for sale, and the devil is a fake. Argue with the silence, but don't let it steal our faith. Hide behind doors, but don't ever show our face. Because if mom had Twitter, Malcolm had Twitter. It'd be our own people do the trolling. Be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Cause if mom had Twitter, then Malcolm had Twitter. It'd be our own people do the trolling. Be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Sometimes the key to life you're looking for be right in front of you. Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new. I said, what if we've been lied to most of our freaking lives? Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right, your arrogance precedes you. What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic. Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry. Hieroglyphic writing on walls you couldn't take from me. A man laid dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head and landed in 1940 or something, I swear. And all I have is love and joy to give. I need to spread my wings. I need to fly away. I want to get high today. Who got five on my little bundle of temporary? Man, I want to live long enough to be legendary. Your statistics said by now that I'm going to be dead and buried. But when I heard your voice, it seems as if we met already. And I'm march for our rights, that civil, the same purpose. Two different tribes and we fighting the same person. Could it be that our eyes was deceiving us? We had to have faith when nobody believed in us. Cosmic companionship sustained me after my husband was assassinated and gave me the strength make my contribution to carrying forward his unfinished work. A man laid dead in the street today, I must have bumped my head and landed in 1940 or something, I swear, and all I have is love and joy to give, I need to spread my...
must come from the bottom up, from the masses of people up. It is here then that we'll come to see the real aspect of Pan-Africanism. We said that in the fifth Pan-African Congress they called for mass organizations, and immediately mass organizations sprang up throughout the length and breadth of the African world. The Conventional People's Party, a mass party, sprang up in Ghana. The Democratic Party of Guinea, a mass party, sprang up in Guinea. Throughout the length and breadth of Africa you had the TANU, the Tanzanian African National Union, which is now the CCM. My Swahili is uh, not as good as yours. Uh, Chimpa, Chimparaza, Maguri. That's very good. Oh, <laughs> my, my Swahili is bad. <laughs> Thank you. Kuduzi. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, that's their new party. But all over Africa, mass parties sprung up. If you look at the Caribbean, mass parties sprung up. And if you look at the United States, mass movements sprang up. So the call was heeded for mass confrontation. Of course, the Fifth Pan-African Congress made two definite and precise resolutions which I want to uh, highlight. Of course, Pan-Africanism from the very beginning was anti-colonial. From the very beginning it was anti-colonial. It was weak. So when they came, they didn't say to the Queen, we're going to put you out of the country. They said, you must treat the natives right. You must educate them. You must prepare them for self-government. These are things that are weak, but they were anti-colonial in essence. We must not look at the form. And we got stronger, the more this anti-colonialism will express itself. Now, anti-colonialism is nothing but anti-capitalism. Because colonialism is nothing but an offshoot, an aspect of capitalism. Therefore, if you're anti-colonial, you must be anti-capitalist, if you're logical in your thinking, of course, and your actions. Some people are not, but we are speaking of logical people here. <laughs> if you're anti-capitalist, then you must be socialist. Capitalism cannot unite Africa. Africa has to be united by socialism. Now, there's a lot of confusion here on this question of capitalism and socialism. Just recently, a young man said to me, but socialism died. I said, it did. He said, you didn't hear about it. I said, I missed the funeral. <laughs> of course, he spoke about the betrayals that occurred in the East. You must not let capitalism confuse your thinking. This is a struggle which Pan-Africanism takes on. We struggle against imperialism in the illogical arena because many people think that capitalism just wants to exploit your labor. It wants to confuse your thinking and make you think just like them. And this is where the real fight occurs. So therefore, this struggle of confusing the thinking, I told the man, I said, you're talking nonsense. Socialism cannot uh, uh, disappear. It cannot die. He said, yes, it can. I said, no. He said, how do you say that? I said, well, you are judging uh, socialism by socialists. You don't do that. He said, I've never heard such nonsense. If you don't judge socialism by socialists, what do you judge it by? I say, you judge it by its principles. Every system is judged by its principles, never its adherence. So he still saw confusion. He said, you're just talking double talk. I said, okay, do you judge Christianity by Christians? <laughs> So we must not 
conscious, becoming conscious is linked to mobilization and organization, something we mentioned last year. We must make clear distinctions between mobilizers and organizers. To be an organizer, you must be a mobilizer. But being a mobilizer doesn't make you an organizer. Much confusion is to be found here. Malcolm X was a great mobilizer. He was a great organizer. Martin Luther King was a great mobilizer. He was not a great organizer. These facts can be easily seen from King and Malcolm. When Malcolm went to a place, he left a mark. When King went to demonstrations, he broke down desegregation and he moved on. As a matter of fact, King was not concerned with organization to the point that even though he was the most popular Baptist preacher in America without the shadow of a doubt, and probably beyond the shadow of a doubt the most loved, he could not become president of the Baptist National Baptist uh, Convention. Yeah, so many of them. The National Baptist Convention. <laughs> As a matter of fact, if my memory serves me correctly now, and I remember it was Mohammed Speaks that uh, carried the article on the front page in 1964 when King tried to become president of the National uh, Baptist Convention. There was so much confusion there that a minister was actually put, pushed off the stage and died in the trouble. Yeah. And of course, King lost. The man who won was a reactionary man by the name of Jackson. He never did nothing for the people, never cared about the people, just was a pork chop minister who used their money to put gas in his big Cadillac. But he was organized. But he was organized. We say that we must come to know the difference between mobilization and organization because the enemy will use mobilization to demobilize us. Mobilization is very easy. Very, very easy. Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. Miss Sally lost a job. Let's rally. She'll get a job back. People will come and rally. So-and-so got kicked out of school because the teacher's unjust. The unjust, the people will come and rally. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. The difference must be properly understood. The difference must be properly understood. Mobilization usually leads to reform action, not to revolutionary action. If we would look scientifically at the October 16th million and more march, we would see clearly that this was a mobilized event, not an organized event. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. One of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary. Organization is permanent and eternal. Clear differences must be made because the unconscious can usually be captured easily around one-issue items, around mobilization items, but it's hard to catch them around organization. But these unconscious must be brought to organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. Many brothers and sisters who've been to the Million and More March will say to you, I was there. Well, what are you doing today, my sister? I was there. 
There weren't too many sisters out there, but you know, with a million brothers together, you know where I had to be. I was there. <laughs> and then, of course, you find brothers. Yeah, I was there. I was there. I helped you. What are you doing today, brother? If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events. The struggle is never an event. It's a process, a continual, eternal process. <laughs> 